Ah, I was muted. Oh, is that what that was? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, well, I was just giving you a very cold shoulder. <laughs> you like, had you got to, why do you hate me? I was just going, it was more like, can, what, we can start any time. I just don't know what the intro is going to be. And now we've probably given ourselves an intro because I was muted. Hooray. Uh, Good times. I, I feel especially boomer right now. Uh, <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Radio Free Golgotha which may be able to be assessed chronologically or indeed by your own engagement with them, hence the, the ritual calendar of it. I believe it is episode 19. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us. Happy midsummer or happy preparations for midsummer or happy post-midsummer, post-summer. That's reminded than just happy summer. <laughs> There's a genre of... Um, Sure. I haven't heard yet. Very touchy about that sometimes. Of like, it's not the middle of the summer. It is by a two seasonal reckoning. Are we into our, are we into midnight versus true midnight again? Well, even just the idea that it's it's summer starts on the summer solstice, but much like the festivals in general, especially post paganism, where it's something starts is does the tide of the Sabbath start before it or after it, or is it marking the ingress or the zenith? Right, um, something and certainly the conception of understanding of we're really dealing with we're dealing with hot, cold weather yeah <laughs> where, where we can't do anything and hot weather where we might be able to do something so yeah bring is still winter and half of fall is already winter <laughs> yeah i don't want to suggest that those kinds of calculations about exact midsummer or the detailed astrology of it is not worth paying attention to or that there isn't there aren't, there aren't wrong answers because there probably are. But I'm just struck by how the Feast of John, particularly, I think, in reading Ronald Hutton's excellent Stations of the Sun on a, a history of the, the ritual year in Britain. And I think in, a, in another text as well, maybe, I want to say maybe Wilson's Magical Universe, where they talk about the Feast of John itself being one of the more movable. And in short, if it was raining that day, like you didn't do it that day. You waited until everyone could go outside to, to light a fire or, or, or whatever else you're doing to mark the, the feast and the Saint Day and the festivities and the wider agricultural customs and, and whatnot that you're doing at the same time. But yeah, I'm always struck by that kind of, it's the festival when people agree to celebrate the festival to a certain extent as well. And I realize that's a little like labeling theory. And, um, and, there, and obviously there is an official position on when it isn't. But the idea of when we celebrate it and when we mark it and how we mark it, as you say, whether or not that's a, a tide starting something or the zenith of something is interesting, at least, hopefully. Yeah, I think that has to do pragmatically. <laughs> Almost all European St. John's Eve, St. John's Day traditions involve a fire outside and therefore right. you cannot actually do that unless there is a fire started and can actually do it. But to, in the spirit of Tim Curry and Anticip something, the, today's episode is brought to you by the Feast of St. John the Baptist. Which means and that's also a saint as well. Yes, that is our saint. Uh, the, and it's the Dia Natalis, right? It's the birthday of John the Baptist, which is always in fact that we can dive into. The demon is a departure this time. We're wanting to expand what it is when we talk about these other, these others that are there. We yeah. have broken out and done different catalogs from different grimoires, mm -hmm. but I am fascinated by the figure of Herodias and not just the Herodias that is syncretized with Aradia, 
right. Herodias as a proto-witch and as a demoness, as she is listed in some catalogs, our demoness of the day. St. John's wort is our plant. Naturally. And pyrite is our often maligned, but amazing in its own right stone. Wonderfully sympathetic to John the Baptist. <laughs> what else do we have on the docket, Al? A genre of magic we're going to discuss is prophecy. Mm. Excited to talk about that and maybe bat about some notions about where that fits in and is distinguished from practices of divination and even maybe getting into some stuff around divine inspiration and the frenzies and manias that Ficino seems so interested in and that often underlies this idea of prophecy. And also uh, to put a pin in this, I, I, or is that a phrase? I'm, to put a tag on this that I want to return to, the notion of prophecy is understood as, as ancient as well. Not just like an ancient prophecy, but the idea of we prof- we look at prophecy based off what people did 2,000 years ago. There's, a, there's, something of, yeah, there's something to how prophecy is often framed as either as an age of prophecy past now or in many charismatic traditions, et cetera, where people are still doing it. It's framed as a continuation of a, a longer tradition with prophecy. Yeah. A geomantic figure of the episode is Tristicia, a sorrow, and its attendant or counterparted Odumeji of Organra. Our major arcana of the episode is the fool, which I think is that's the first time we've looked at the fool, right? It might be. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. And we'll have our wonderful hidden Easter egg episodes <laughs> <laughs> to begin again. And first uh, and the last card, of course, unnumbered and therefore one in, except in number. That quote you love uh, that I'm getting wrong. It is our, our second time. <laughs> uh, and our dead magician is PB Randolph, Pascal yes. Beverly Randolph, that we're both pretty excited to talk about. I know you've wanted to, to chat about him for, for a hot minute, Jesse. Yes. You know? So excited to, to dive into this at once incredibly modern magician uh, and also to try and shine a little more light on him uh, as well, so to speak. Yeah. I think we were saying before we started that uh, neither of us consider ourselves like experts in his corpus of work, or certainly I don't, I don't want to speak to you, Jesse, but we're both fascinated by him and his historical place. And so we wanted to, to give time for ourselves, at least, to uh, about some of his ideas uh, and discuss the, the life and times of this fascinating man. Absolutely. Uh, so welcome to episode 19. 19 is a very strange number because it's a prime number, but it's also very rarely occurs in magical things unless you are a Stephen King Dark Tower fan. It's one of his, uh, one of his numbers. It, it's one of the numbers of that series. And there is the, I think it's the metonymic cycle, does 19 years. But otherwise, it's not a number that comes up often. Yeah. So, uh, I think I can think only of the Pillars of Gladness, which is one of the stray lines from one of the Enochian calls. It has the Pillars of Gladness 19, and you yeah, have fastened vessels with which to water the earth and its creatures that I use for a lot of my libation stuff. But yeah, again, the, the numerology and the angelical material is itself rather obtuse at times. I just said metonymic and it's metonic, mm-hmm. which is adding syllables in. But uh, so the metonic cycle is the lining up of the phases of the moon with the solar calendar in the sense that the same phase then occurs 19 years later on the same day. Oh, blinding. The discrepancies between solar and lunar calendars are done in that way. In addition to the 11, is it 11 day shift? Oh, the intercalary days? Yeah. But, yeah, but this, it's interesting then like 19 is such a, it's a lunar number right. by that, or it's a solar number because one is catching up to the other, but the agreement of them suggests in some form eclipse, but it's an alignment. It's a major alignment number. 
I've never really thought about going into the numerology of our episodes because uh, we have so many missing ones so far. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose whether or not you celebrate your birthday that year, it's still your birthday. As for all of us Aries babies that got to have quarantine birthdays. Mm-hmm. Be like the queen in, in even more ways than you already are and have a, an official birthday as well later. But yeah. <laughs> more attention just to confuse me. No. <laughs> all right. Speaking of queens and official proclamations and the interweaving of several of our topics through one common theme, John the Baptist, it's tradition to start with the saint. I've been concentrating in, in terms of looking at traditions and things. At, at that, I've been concentrating on St. John's Eve traditions around uh, the feast rather than the figure of the saint themselves. Yeah. But it probably makes sense for us to start with the, with the wild man himself. I think the first important thing to talk about in this context, because of the Feast of St. John the Baptist being a, a, a easily calendrical set date for the summer solstice. So it is specifically chosen to be six months opposite Christmas, in which Jesus is born in air quotes, not in a condescending manner. But we know that the biblical description of Jesus's birth implies during the lambing season, of which December is not in that part of the world. It implies a, a certain time period that is, that, is, that is not working for the picking of it. And it, it's obviously, I think there's the, we can, we've talked about value centers many times, but the fusing of things onto a seasonal calendar was one of the strongest hallmarks of Christianity adapting to the needs of people in a climate that was not necessarily at all anything like the, the climate of the origin of the tradition. And this is a big thing too. This, this ties into things about people saying that you should engage in ancestral practices because that's the practices of your ancestors because there's a familiarity there. That's a very complex topic, which we can talk about another time because it, mm-hmm. it opens up a lot of lack of discussion of conversion. And what that means for people, because it's uh, there's a diversity of ancient religions, and it doesn't make sense to say that you only practice what your ancestors practice, because right. we don't speak the language your ancestors spoke. Mm-hmm. However, in picking Jesus's birthday as the December 25th, then we get John the Baptist, and it is six months earlier. His the official feast day is the 24th. It is a birthday. It is one of the few saints where we celebrate the birth, and the eve of which, just so because people often get confused. The eve is the 23rd, and this is by Catholic reckoning that sundown on the day before is the start of a feast, right. uh, which also implies that sundown on the day of the feast is no longer the feast, right. uh, except that it doesn't really work in that advantage. We still celebrate into the nighttime. Um, but the idea of the eve, much like Halloween being the eve of all hollows, uh, right. this, that, which means technically Halloween starts at sundown, which is its own thing. Christmas Eve starts at sundown. Or at 4 p.m. Mass, if you're a good Catholic. <laughs> John the Baptist is born on this day, and he is a, a gospel saint, right? So he is mentioned as the cousin of Jesus when Mary goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth. And the babe leaps in Elizabeth's womb out of joy for Mary coming into their presence. Mm-hmm. And there's this notion that this baby inside her womb is heralding, is prophesying from the womb, recognizing the importance of the babe that Mary carries, who is right. Mary is God knocked six months after Elizabeth is unlikely knocked in the sense that they were not able to, the, the conception of John the Baptist has its own things about it. Not exactly miraculous, but also not straightforward. Yes, exactly. So there's this notion that happens where we don't really hear about it until much later, but what's interesting about this is the, the salutation of Elizabeth when she sees Mary is 
part of the Hail Mary. Right. One of the main prayers that is used in Catholicism. And so it's an interesting side of it that John the Baptist is witness to this utterance that is used by so many. And there are even esoteric traditions that say that he is the one that gave the words to Elizabeth to use. Mm. Um, the, The prophesying starts in the womb there. So John the Baptist is going to run into the wilderness at some point, right? And mm-hmm. himself a locust and honey. Mm-hmm. And become the man in the wilderness that is prophesying of, of the Messiah's coming. And this, he draws a crowd as there were many messianic prophets, prophets at this time period because right. there was pressure, oppressor yep. that Rome was occupying, that the current king was someone who was playing into Rome's hands and also making amazing buildings. That was what he did. He's viewed as a villain by Judeo-Christian history, but he also built the main things that are still standing because of Roman access. Empire builds things. That's what empire does. There is the notion, and John the Baptist meaning he baptized Jesus, which is its own thing, that this is the acknowledgement of Jesus as the son of God happens at John the Baptist's hands, but that's much later. So it's interesting that the birthday being the saint's day that is primarily celebrated because his beheading is, I believe, in August, the the celebration of his death. Mm -hmm. The idea of this has led many depictions of John the Baptist to being a a young toddler Mm -hmm. in furry robes with the lamp behind him and having the 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 war banner of the cross right side so the depiction of him as a holy child that is equal to the holy child of jesus so there's this parallel thing going on and there's so much that can look we can go into the whole because we're going to have to with herodias anyway so i'm pretty sure we're going to tell the rest of the the popular narrative but i'm pretty sure most people know this i do think that there is uh, the lovely on reference in here always goes into my head even though it's not necessarily in any way about John the Baptist, but the the fact that it's honey and locusts always sticks into my head of the prophesying of, at the end of Coolidge's poem. And all who heard should see him there and all should cry, beware his flashing eyes, his floating hair, weave a circle round him thrice and close your eyes with holy dread for he on honey dew hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise. There is a history of desert monasticism. Right. It comes in and it speaks to, we've talked about Mary of Egypt before, and certainly, we just had St. Anthony's feast day, even though it's a different St. Anthony. <laughs> but it, the name of St. Anthony Padua harkens back to St. Anthony the Great, St. Anthony Abad, who is the father of monasticism in that way of, of going into the desert, abandoning the civilized, quote-unquote, world in order right. to alone with your thoughts and therefore find God in that. And certainly, John the Baptist is this crazy figure who is viewed as possibly being the Messiah himself, possibly being Elijah coming to prophesy the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Elijah who is to come, right? Yeah. Which Jesus acknowledges him as. Yeah. Uh, but it's such a fascinating figure. Certainly there's parallels and you can go into a lot of the, there's been so much written since the uh, 60s and 70s on the parallels to the Holly King and the Oak King as being John the Baptist and Jesus mm. in practice. Whether or not we want to re-paganize those things or re-Christianize those things, just the the acknowledgement that these traditions exist side by side. There is no separation of them in practice, whether someone's views are more towards the syncretic or towards the Christian or towards the pagan. It constantly reminds me of the, that quote, I'll remember better later, or I'll insert the actual version of it, but that what many of us are working with, that proud transculturation standpoint that I hold by, 
mm-hmm. of I'm tired of other people labeling things for me. Those of us with multiple cultural backgrounds, multiple racial backgrounds, multiple linguistic backgrounds, you're never enough of something for one group and you're too much of something for another group. So this idea of having to be purely one thing or the other, we talked a little bit about this in the, the discussion of folk Catholicism in the past of just John the Baptist for me is a, a, a very interesting figure that speaks to something much larger than just the modern application of Christian mythos. And there's something as a figure there where we can even go into the two Johns as patrons of masonry specifically, which also refers to using the same name uh, as a hagiographical conflation. Oh, I forgot. The the blur. The blur. Yeah, hagiographic blur. I was like, I forgot the actual term, damn it, of using the same name to then therefore have John the Beloved, who is in late December, be another marker there. And therefore you get the circumscribing of the year. And so like John, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine here in New York, which is one of the largest Gothic cathedrals in the world, mm-hmm. is it's an Episcopalian Anglican that's that communion. It's not Catholic, but the, the it's two both saints. And I find that fascinating. And on the pedestal, you get John the Evangelist and you also get John the Baptist. Right. And so you get the one who is inflamed with prayer in the desert, who is living fully this opening of the way can go into God's spell all I want there uh, <laughs> and prepare you the way. But the hearkening to and the foreshadowing of the beloved of Christ, who if we're still back in the, was it the early 2000s with Da Vinci Code and the Priory of Sion and the John as the messianic figure, which is its own side of things. Especially when we get into the idea that John of Patmos might not have been John the Evangelist or John the Apostle. Heresy. <laughs> or hearsay. One of the right, two. right, right. Yes, biblical scholars say that, but it's one of those things. I can't hear you over two thousand years of church tradition. Exactly. Uh, uh, that's cute. That, that's like when people argue about any of the hagiographic blurs. Right. Like, yeah, that's adorable. But there's a, you still want to celebrate Christmas at on December twenty fifth because that's mm-hmm. basically a similar thing. Right. Uh, traditions are what they are. It's the danger. It's the two hundred two danger of you get pretty sure about the little bit of what you know. And the danger is that you calcify there and, and decide that because you haven't heard of it it, it, it must be a thing. Or the search for authenticity getting in the way of what one might call an authentic practice in some way, trying to distinguish between the, the saints that are being blurred or their stories that are being blurred, the, 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 the meanings and the, the emblematic understandings uh, of these saints and their purviews of influence and effect. It's tempting to want to... to Make sure none of your food touches because that's nice and neat. But sadly, human history uh, tends to work in exactly the opposite way. As the historian, see, that's very good. It's, it's helpful. It's, help, it's better to say that than I do. We're useful. We're useful. I promise we are. Yeah. Truth that never existed. <laughs> Look how clean my altar to nothing is. And how dare you say that your altar to nothing is better than my altar to nothing. <laughs> but yeah, we have a we have a, a John the Baptist. I think of I know it's I know it's it's pop, but like I keep thinking of um, draw light in Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell when he, it's discovered that he's been claiming to know Mister Norrell and being a very close personal friend of his, despite never having met him. Oh, and then finally he does, and he's like, "I have been your John the Baptist, sir, yeah. uh, announcing your way." Yeah, <laughs> bless him. So yeah, we have we have clues in his name. 
in terms of his main thing of not just announcing or prophesying the coming of the Christ, but also of the centralization of baptism as a central symbol or sacrament. How is the, the group, the Essenes, is it? Essenes? Uh, the Essenes, the, which Wikipedia describes as a semi-ascetic Judaic sect. I love the idea of semi-ascetic. Of like locusts, yeah, but also honey. And so where this conflation between him being ascetic, like the, the, like the camel hair, because it's rough, but that always is going to make me think of, of some of the traditional steeds of the three magi, but also that he starts to take on not just a quality of wearing animal skins, but of himself being a hairy, not quite man. Uh, and the um, the attendant kind of traditions or depiction standards of the wild man, right? Yeah, certainly. It there's a it fits into the progression of John the Baptist representing the wild nature of humankind that gives way to the refined nature of humankind through Jesus. You see the conflation also with San Onofre, whose English name I always forget because I don't see him talked about much in English. Maybe a saint that we need to go for, but San Onofre is often depicted in a wild man status as well. And so it's one of those saints that is heralding to something and also plays into whenever there's wild man things going on in, a, in an area, then St. John the Baptist always finds sway in there because it's an easy iconographic recognition there. I right. think there's something also interesting in that going back to the birth, because it's so what it is that the main strangeness about it is not that it's impossible, but you're dealing with an older couple. And Elizabeth is postmenopausal, So she is free from, she has lived through the curse. And that means that the womb is not tainted, quote unquote, metaphysically in the parlance of the Catholic church there with the blood of menses. And therefore John the Baptist exists post the curse. Oh, interesting. It allows for the herald in his own way to have not an immaculate conception, right. but a birth that is free from the from or a birth that is free from the stain of menses, as was viewed. Again, trying to be very clear that I don't view menses in that way. But there's certainly in the cultures that understand, especially magically, men's need for bloodletting as a catching up to women, mm-hmm. as as is done in certain parts of Iberia and France during magical acts in order to get the dull humors out. So women do once a month naturally, men do not. Uh, and here's another feature of, of humoral theory being inconsistently applied around OBGYN stuff, around hysteria, around the wandering uterus. Uh, yeah, there's plenty of humoral theory that says menstruation is is a natural phlebotomy. And, the, and this is taken both ways. There are certain writers who say this kind of shows that the female body is better at regulating itself than the male body in some ways. And then others say that this is not just the curse of Eve, but a result of women's bodies needing to do this because they are inherently more corruptible. So it, it gets taken both ways. So again, the read on what I think what is going on in humoral theory then has a layer of, and how does this fit the agenda of the person pushing it? Not in a dissimilar way to arguments that are, political arguments that occur within medical journals. Occasionally. I think John the Baptist is also a really interesting figure in that he is highly critical of the establishment, right. uh, highly critical of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and is promoting acts of charity. He is doing things like baptizing tax collectors. He talks to soldiers on both sides of the conflict, all the while preaching that the Messiah is coming. 
So it's it, it. This is the this is the origin of the man holding the placard that says like the end is near. Right. Well, there there was a lot of this in that time period historically. Whether or not we acknowledge John the Baptist's historical figure, one of the reasons that it can be claimed to be such is that even a couple hundred years later, there's such memory of this time period during the Roman occupation before the destruction of the Second Temple. Right. It becomes this. You believed it was the end of the world. It was horrible things happening. Civil unrest was common. There were many false messiahs constantly according to authority, whether or not we're going to call Jesus the true Messiah or not. That's up for each person to make up their mind on. But even debating the, con- the difference between historical Christ versus spirit Christ and like how that merged out into Roman Catholic politics in time. Yeah. But that's fascinating that like it plays into, to, to announce the end times, it makes me think about even fast forwarding to prophecy of how many people love to predict bad things. Mm-hmm. And my dad told me when I was little, because I was asking about that, and he said, it's so easy to predict bad things because when it doesn't happen, everyone's relieved and doesn't look to you as if you're wrong. Good thing it doesn't happen. The disappointment is terrible. And they were like, you said this was going to happen. Why didn't it happen if you avoided it? So it's that thing that like, it's a tool of the diviner to the shady diviners, especially, right? Where you can predict bad. Well, if you don't do this, maybe if we do this working, this thing won't happen this way. Right. So the proof of the pudding is that nothing happened to you. Yeah. And yep. that's kind of, there's something to that where that can actually be a thing that you've averted a disaster that was predicted, yeah. but it can also be a classic shyster thing. Right. Because, uh, and that's kind of the case with, with prophecy of those sorts as well. In two years, you will see that I am right, but I'm taking my check now, which is also tricky because that there's also based off current extrapolations, we can say that this is a pattern that will play out. And here, I think that is a crucial distinction between divination and prophecy, right? Divination certainly computational divination, if we can put it that way, based off the manipulation of sets, signs, or, or chunks of the, co- or, or things that represent lots of fates, or, or chunks of the cosmos, or, 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 or wherever we want to put those rarefied ontological taxonomies. The, the notion is that you're doing a kind of empiricism. When this pattern meets this pattern, this is the result. And as such, we can extrapolate from what's happened to what's going to happen, as opposed to prophecy, which seems to just beam straight from the future, so to speak or jumps without the steps of how to get there necessarily. Yeah, the divination is a study of the past patterns in order to look at where where you're at and diagnose those patterns as, well, this has unfolded this way before. Prophecy is a much more, it's it's such that prophecy is almost always linked to a deity or a spirit informing the person. Even in modern times where we view prophecy as something of antiquity, for the most part, those people that do hold up prophecy as a thing that is possible, if you are prophetic, there is a link to something outside of you that we don't believe humans innately possess this knowledge. Right. Uh, humans can divine in many of, even within that understanding of, you can look at the past. In some ways, going to a doctor is still divination based. Oh, yeah. Because, and this is an interesting side of it there, like medicine is divination. Like, I understand that there is better divination now right? You're taking scans. You're looking at what most likely we're going to diagnose you with this thing. And we predict that giving you this med, which has proved in the past to do this, right. that is a form of divination and remediation that you're hoping will have effect. Absolutely. No, no blood test comes back saying, this is what you need to do about this thing. There's still interpretation of the data that is required. Absolutely. And that, yeah. and that, and when we understand divination as part of that human impulse in order to say, what are the best practices or what are the scenarios around this from the past? There's something there. And Certainly, even if we look into prophecy here, so John the Baptist is prophesying that the Messiah is coming. He's predicted to be the Elijah returning, 
in some form to, to, to herald the end times. We are dealing with prophecies that are already known in the holy texts and that those prophecies are from the mouths of the prophets themselves, the Navim, but right. they are creating a future where someone is going to reference them. <laughs> yes. And we've seen it in, I'm sure as everyone that has been in, in, in different occult groups, there's always someone that's going to be the one that Crowley predicted would be able to make sense of the code. <laughs> uh, like, I've cracked it and it's me and I've done it and I'm the prophesized one. So it is an interesting thing because it sets up this self-fulfillment where people are obviously going to refer to that text to justify themselves or what they believe. Right. Uh, it's fascinating. It ties into ideas of politics and religion conflation that, yeah, it, there's interesting about, what is it? The Gospel of John, I think, talks about the debate of whether or not that Jesus was greater or John was greater. Uh, the, the light and the witness to the light stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That was an important thing. A, a, a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. That That's how John, the, the evangelist refers to Jesus referring to John the Baptist. And, and this is partly an understanding of, of baptism itself uh, and the kind of argument of like, how can someone less holy than Jesus make him more holy? Through, through baptism. Yeah. And, and this itself underlies what purification, not just technical, not just ritual technicians talking about consecrations and purification, but also the divine status of, of JC and, and of J the B, but of also a re-understanding a re of, or, a re-understanding. It brings to mind approaches to thinking about initiation to me about what's actually required and moving away from a model of initiation as a, as a set of graded belts uh, of which you are pulled up a ladder and more about a deeper integration with something. The gradation thing is interesting. So it, it just, it, it brings up ideas. Of, I don't know why that reminded me of it, but the, oh my God, it's going to test my Dune knowledge. Is it the voice Ooh. of the outer world, the off-world prophets, mm. which is very playing on a John the Baptist type of thing because over right. Uh, the prophecy of Isaiah that I'll send the messenger ahead of you and will prepare your way, a voice calling in the wilderness. Yes. And that's beautiful, right? Because it therefore speaks to like wilderness and what we're doing there. On the one hand, it's the peripheries. It's not the, it's not the center of the thing. It's not coming. The call isn't coming from within the room. But on the other hand, the idea of, of that which is ignored but shouldn't be is also that uh, we were talking about Azazel last week in terms of what is sent into the wilderness as opposed to what comes out of it. And there's also, again, that reverse Cassandra thing of, of you, no one, you all thought I was crazy, but I was, I saw the light. I was, I was, and, and you all listened to me. Yeah. And, and even the, uh, the notion of bringing up wilderness as in lost in the wilderness, what happens after the expulsion from the garden, that all cities are an attempt to get back to Edenic order. Right. And are naturally corrupt because it's not Eden. Uh, but this, the, the, that which was hidden and we were outcast from mm. brings up whole fun things when we get to Randolph because he was a pre-Adamite. That's his own fascinating thing and changed pre-Adamite ideas about everyone else so that they were savages, the people that were the, the, the suppliers of the wives of Cain and Abel, where they weren't their sisters. But who are the, de- who are the dead that Adam is supposedly raising in the garden or was able to raise in the garden, according to the, the Semaphoras? And not even playing into the whole set that this is the third time round. 
uh, a better shape marker. But okay, so yeah, the idea that it comes from the state of decay we're in, which talks of the degenerate times, which brings up like Kali Yuga and Buddhist degenerate times, things of we are in the Iron Age at best. We're not in the the, the Golden Age. And yet, the wilderness is also the is also the furnace and the, and the four and that the forges prophets. So it is both the peripheral and the ignored, but also the place where the rubber meets the road on your spiritual practice, right? Yes, it is the desert of the real, right? Right. To get all Lacan slash Morpheus about it. Um, <laughs> why not the notion of prophesying or stating the existence of a decaying of times? in Simulacra and Simulation, mm. of quoting a Bible quote that doesn't exist that people just assume is from the Bible. That shows the nature of the degenerate times that we're right. in, which one of the markers of, of Buddhist degenerate times is that people are more attracted to teachers because they're attractive than of what they're saying. Oh, interesting. Instagram, oh, what? How to market yourself and the mark of the beast being embedded in every barcode, I'm told, from every website. <laughs> about that, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's there, Al. I, you can show it somebody. Mm-hmm. But it, yep. there is this side of it that John the Baptist becomes this slightly off-balance person in his depictions. He's always depicted as slightly mad. But it doesn't seem that he's mad from biblical description or certainly the prophesied thing. It's more that it almost feels like a tool of the state to put him down because the reason that we can talk about Herodias as tied to John the Baptist is heavily is because he was critical of the state. He criticized the sin of Herod who divorced his wife and they were not complete yet though, but she left her husband, he left his wife and they were together, but they weren't divorced yet and therefore living in sin. And it's one of those things of being critical of something that is literal, but you are not husband and wife yet. You're living like husband and wife. And this is abhorrent to an entire populace, not even allowing for the fact, okay, yeah, divorce happens. However, you are outside of, you're making yourself outside of the law. It goes to that whole king does not lie thing that we talked about. Yeah. Uh, you know, is it that the king is always truthful or is it that the king creates his own truth? Um, which one <laughs> are you? So to take it back to John the Baptist, because I'm excited about all these things, Herodias, St. John's Eve becomes, it was already a marker, obviously already had its own traditions associated with it across Europe Yeah, because of its, th- that time period, meaning that the height, the zenith of the sun's energy the, the, the days shift there and the long, the concept of the longest day, the longest period of daylight as right. being connected to fire and the sun and fecundity and the land warming up to produce the life of that we harvest. So this is the swelling of the belly to give birth to the babies of the fall. And St. John becomes associated with this. And, um, and therefore with the burning of aromatic herbs, for instance, to, to ward off like those influences on this nation's baby or fertility that has to be guarded. Yeah, it must be, it, it's precious and therefore must be guarded. And that the future hopes of getting through the long night ahead, winter is coming, right. are dependent upon, from the time of John the Baptist's feast, starting to make sure that everything's going okay, that the plants aren't getting diseased, which is a big part of it. I mean, if you look into a lot of uh, fertility traditions, we're dealing with notions of miasma that include fungal rot, disease, famine, things like this. So we're trying to make sure that we're going to have enough shit to get through the winter. So the traditions, in addition to aromatic herbs, you're dealing with controlled fire, which I find fascinating too, right? So it's almost like bloodletting in that way. Building a bonfire that is raging 40 feet, 50 feet tall that everyone can see for miles around. A good fire. Yeah, it is a good fire. Is it it a need fire in the sense of like, (laughs) 
in the sense of what a neat fire is? Not necessarily, right? Because it is more celebratory, but jumping through the flames is always everybody, every major bonfire feast has jumping through the flames. But so why wouldn't you? I, because it's just quite hot. <laughs> realize how alive you are. Certainly those of us with unkempt facial hair, it gives you a trim. <laughs> yeah. It's that will roll a, a burning wheel down a mountainside, right? Yeah, and cheese. I don't know why your people do cheese, Al. Safer than uh, burning wheels. I, I guess so, yeah. Like, I guess so. Uh, angelic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. It's easy to see it as like sun mysteries, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, be not afraid. Yeah. Uh, why do you keep needing to say be not afraid? <laughs> yeah. I'm not hitting you. I'm not hitting you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> why are you gazing upon yourself in terror? Why are you gazing upon yourself in terror? Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested in the in the water stuff as well. Like, obviously, there's, as you say, kept fire and and need fire and, and useful fire and, and being able to direct and regulate warmth. The other side of this is is all of the is all of the baptism stuff. Right? Yeah. It's all of the stuff around, gosh, from the medieval town architecture of a, a John the Baptist church would be near the would be the church nearest the well. So you could literally navigate, you need water, you would look for St. John's or would ask someone where St. John's is. Also often, like in, in Bristol, for instance, often not far from a St. Dunstan's because metallurgists, metal workers need a, a water supply. So there's that aspect of it. Uh, then there's also the, the gathering of dew, which has its own kind of ideas around moisture and fertility, uh, as well as keeping illness at bay, obviously. And again, a connection to the blessings of the natural world and nature, and even some specific things around to you gathered on St. John's Eve being good for fostering hair growth as well, because hairy baby. There's many explanations for that, in addition to hairy baby, but also the zenith of the sun, the thing that's exposed to the sun. Hairy stars, yeah. Well, well, just that your hair is literally the thing that is ornamenting the thing that is pointing towards the sun. Mm. So that when the sun is overhead, then it it encourages the growth of the hair to protect the head. Right. Uh, as this is a very like humoral new world philosophy on that too, but that is bathing in the waters of the sun when it's at the highest in the sky is because your hair is an outgrowth to protect the head. Hair growth because your head, you, your body understands there's some sympathy there of growth, which is the fecundity of everything, right? The, the water that is collected on St. John's Eve contains the pinnacle of growth of the sun and therefore is nurturing to all. Right. It becomes right. the miracle of mana. The desert that that we are being fed from the sky. Yeah, I'm really struck by all of the traditions around leaving it outside as well. Whatever it is you're gathering, whether that's um, I was struck by the similarities to certain Bridget's Day rites of leaving a piece of cloth like in your window or outside that it might gather the the dew, or even talked about as the saint is passing by, they like bestow their blessing on it. And you also get that with specific kind of water preparations of, of gathering water and leaving, placing like lavender leaves and St. John's wort and things like that in a basin left overnight outside the house to absorb the, all those powers transmitted via either the saint or the dew or the moonlight or, these, like, or, or the position and the movement of the sun itself. Like all of those kinds of things play in. And I find interesting the idea of leaving, um, leaving a preparation overnight and then coming back to it in the morning. Which speaks very strongly to uh, parallels to other spiritual practices like of putting things before an idol, putting things yeah. before a spirit. Yeah, at the feet of. Yeah, and so this notion of what are you putting it at the feet of there? Well, the sun, the day itself, the time soul of the sun, 
which my head immediately goes to 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 Mexican cosmologies there of the, the soul of the day being a thing that plants are exposed to. They don't have an individual soul, but they do have a life force and they have a day soul. And they're experienced because of the time they're first exposed to the light. And therefore, plants that are that flower around this time period, even things like St. John's Wort, which we're going to talk about shortly, and the lore around this, what is blooming, it's, it brings to mind the discussions that has happened so many times about what plants are associated with what neo-pagan Sabbath. Mm. And <laughs> many of the old guards would be like, whatever is blooming at that time. <laughs> right, because that's how you know. It doesn't, and, and again, this is that, yeah, things on things don't sting because they're martial. They're martial because they sting. Like our, our engagement it, it, it is usually empirical based off what it does, what it looks like, what it's growing with, where it's growing, as opposed to some abstract astrological or, or other, other kind of category that then is used to explain why it does the thing. Like it's, 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 it's not because nature read a book on how to categorize things and they're right. Well, your DNA is 70% Mars, so you're going to have <laughs> more sting than that plant. It's right. not that. It is our, our descriptions of everything from planetary associations to elemental associations to, to deity associations to Orisha associations, all these things, Odu associations, is because of observation of those things, and it's a way of classifying. We are naming them. They yeah. are not being made evident, and which is an interesting commentary, too, on the, like, the noose of the noose. I'm also struck by how this day, some of its miracles are also about the fecundity of nature itself. So uh, the myths around that on the eve of St. John, that certain stuff blooms more powerfully. Uh, Agrippa makes mention of a nut tree around Italy, which seemeth dry all year and on the eve of St. John doth produce both leaves and fruit and ripe nuts. And so people go and, and harvest it this time. This is prob. I, I, I wonder. It, it sounds like it's a reference to the myth of an ancient walnut tree in Benevento, which is also tied to uh, where witches gather, where witches fly to. The, the good winds feels a little the kindly ones uh, kind of euphemism there. It feels a little little John about the whole thing. We'll call it the good winds, uh, the good neighbors, etc. And so the idea being that this this nut tree just flowers on this one day. And, and you go and gather the fruits on that day. And ideally, it's a virgin maiden, obviously. She's barefoot and dressed in white. She uses only her hands or wooden tools. Uh, and she climbs it after the moon rises to gather an, an even number of fruits. And this is used in the, the making of um, Nocino, which I had to look up the, spe- the pronunciation of because I am horribly English. But it's a, a, a walnut preparation, liqueur. So this idea of at this particular time, nature also knows that it's midsummer or it's, or it's John Day and bursts forth with more life from the wilderness. Well, again, the, the, one is symptomatic of the other, and it becomes a chicken or the egg thing when you right. are in the tradition. Yeah. Uh, this is one of those things that's it's an evidence of a living tradition as opposed to a, a, a revived tradition. It's not, this is not the perfect marker in any means. But generally, if you're obsessed with why something works, mm. you are coming at it from an etic perspective. And if you're obsessed with something that because it works, you're coming at it from an emic perspective. And that's just, that's a broad categorization, but it's, you know, I know that it's, I'm not trying to say like, oh, but it's most oh. emic traditions have reasons as to why something is working, but they're not obsessed with it. No, and I, I was reflecting on this and maybe I'm, I'm tangenting here, but I was reflecting on this in terms of a generally, the contrast of approaches that says this kind of attitude that I, you know, we see more from, shall we say like those coming from a Western magical tradition of that you should know 
the quote unquote symbolism behind what you're doing before you do it, that you should know as much as possible and understand why you're doing a thing before you do it. Whereas it, it, it seems to me if we're going to make this, and I, I understand it's a very thumbnail sketch between Western and uh, quote unquote non-Western, but it, yeah, yeah, and I understand that's already a deeply Eurocentric attitude, but if you'll bear with me for just a second. The, the other, uh, another attitude that I see a lot is, no, do the thing and you learn why we do it by doing it over and over again. And it's while doing it that an elder might tell you like oh, something about it or something about what they've thought about it. And it, it produces, on, on a good day, it seems to produce people learning the mechanics of a thing by doing it rather than building up an abstracted theoretical knowledge that then has to be applied to working out how to actually be in physical space and do the thing physically. You can always meditate on why something is being done while you're doing it. But if you do not ever do it, yeah. you will only be meditating on why it is done. Well, you'll also only be meditating on your version of why it's being done. Yes. Which it's is going to be... Like the, right. that it's, it brings to mind the admonition that a, a Kabbalist doesn't start studying until they're in their 30s. You must be established in your... You must have a business practice that can sustain you. You must have children that can do work for you. You must have a wife that can help because we're going from a, a male-centric practice here. But you must have a family that can support your sudden desire to study and not be of physical use to your family. And you must also have life experience and familiarity with language. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't help to study the esoteric side of a language when you don't know it. We see this as a fallback of enthusiasm, a product of enthusiastic people coming to any tradition of wanting to learn a language. And it's great to learn these things, but you can't make grand sweeping metaphysical ideas of the language or else you end up just stitching shit together that doesn't actually mean something. You can, of course take a class in whatever language you want or an online thing. But if you only learn from a dictionary and a grammar book and you, you're not fluent the same way, you're not. And that is something definitely, I mean, there's been heavy critique of that. We can go back and look at the Hebrew of many of the people that did things in the West trying to, to make sense of things, but their Hebrew wasn't very good. Yeah. The problematics of, of certain versions of philo-Semitism, right? Oh gosh, you're also magic. Yeah. It's a, it, it's a weird well, one. The imagery of it all. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. The capacity, if we, if we want to. As that far way. as San Juan, there's other things. St. John, um, because I'm specifically going to Sawa, which mm -hmm. I've met before, but when we talk about water practices, so the conquest of the Central Valley in Mexico, of the Mexica, the Aztec Empire, you have two primary gods um, that were worshipped across the great, uh, atop the Great Pyramid, which is now the site of the main cathedral of Mexico City, built with the same stones. So those stones have witnessed human sacrifice in many forms. And there's that great passage from uh, The Hummingbird's Daughter, which talks about that. And maybe I'll insert that in or meme it or something for us because it's it, talking about looking, being in the cathedral and knowing that these stones have witnessed your ancestors' deities as well. Speaks to creolism and transculturation very strongly. <laughs> However, my point with that is that there's the god of war, Huizilipochtli, and the god of rain, Tlaloc. Now, Tlaloc is an, an evol evolution of a native value center in the sense that it's a direct inheritance of Chak and the Mayan deity of rain and the local many other deities of rain. Tlaloc is worshipped alongside Huizilipochtli, who is brought with the Mexica from the Four Corners region of the United States. Mm -hmm. is, uh, their war god is foreign to Mexico. It comes from what at some point was actually northern Mexico, but is now the United States. 
and was worshipped alongside. The war god gets smashed because they are defeated in war. But everybody needs crops. Everybody needs food. The rain is still an important value center. And things change. Jesus the Bosch gets replaced by Jesus. Um, and the, the incredibly strong, graphic, gory imagery of Roman Catholicism and martyrdom. And then John the Baptist becomes associated with Tlaloc because these two deities were also worshipped side by side. And so mm. the, the romanticism of the colonial era of having baby Jesus and baby John yeah. Um, one predicts the other. One is the baptizer, the one who holds the bowl of water over Jesus's head. It becomes St. John becomes the stand-in for the rain deities of Mexico. And Sawa, who is the name that is often invoked, comes from San Juan. And Sawa is the inheritor of Tlaloc, the inheritor of Chac, that lives in the Gulf of Mexico and describes the rains that come from this giant basin of water which also brings in other wonderful permutations that are fun to explore because that is the site of the crater impact that, that is said to have destroyed the dinosaurs. Oh, um, the Gulf of Mexico. So the, the specific quality of what that is and what the Gulf of Mexico is yeah. fascinating to consider. The, the, that is the point of a huge change. Right. And another instance of that example of not putting candles to a bad, good candles to a bad saint, right? Not putting uh, good sacrifices to a bad war god. Uh-huh. That the war, the, the value center of war is still there, but it shifts to adopting colonial practice as that because that's they were defeated. Yeah. Other practices with St. John's Eve, in addition to it being a primary witch's Sabbath night, like huge, <laughs> but the striking of people with certain plants to ward them of to, to make sure that they're healthy for the next year. Mm-hmm. Plants that have astringent qualities or plants that are citrus like in scent or even sometimes thorny are struck or like in Spain, the, the use of whole ash trees in the Pyrenees for bonfires because ash burns when green. So right. it, you can chop down a tree and it will light on fire for you in the center of town. When I lived in San Sebastian, this was like an amazing thing to see. You, you can see this tree that is 40 feet tall being propped up and lit a fire in the center of the, of many different areas of town, but everybody had their 20 to 40 foot tree mm-hmm. on fire thrown in with other plants, of course. So you have roses and wheat and St. John's wort and many other things added. But yeah. idea of um, the things at the zenith, that this is the period of health. This is when we have the least disease uh, in a moist area, but it's still raining when it needs to. The crops are good. We want to capture this. We want to, this is a calendrical election. It might not be astrological, but it's certainly solar. Um, we don't care about anything else because it's still <laughs> uh, yeah. nothing else. The sun was good that day. Right. No. So it's like liquid picnic to take the water <laughs> from this day. Uh, There's also dreaming traditions around midsummer, specifically, usually the classic divination from dream over who you will marry, which maybe shouldn't be called love divination. Maybe should just be called marriage divination. But we get a couple versions of that reported from the, the early modern period anyway. One is uh, the classic leaving, setting a table with bread and cheese and a, a cup of best beer, as Richard Bovitt in Pandemonium says. And you leave the door open and afterwards you're meant to see uh, the person that you should marry will come into the room and, and, and will drink and maybe even will offer a toast. And there are some interesting distinctions. Aubrey gives a specific example of this, of women going and gathering plantain roots and putting them under their pillows to, to dream of their husbands, but also these traditions around 
who is turning up in the vision about whether or not it's a vision for a start, whether or not you're awake when you see this thing happen. The gentlest version seems to be it's a dream and you're just perceived to have dreamed that person. That must be who you're meant to be with. The weirdest versions of these kinds of midsummer dreamings are that you're not dreaming at all. You're awake and a devil turns up wearing the, the, the or a spirit turns up wearing the form of the person that you're meant to marry. So it's not actually them. Uh, which again, is this prophecy? Is this a spirits uh, attempting to fool you? Why cannot we both? <laughs> Why not both? Yeah, yeah, or precisely, precisely. Yeah, well, so it's not dissimilar from some of the things done on St. Agnes's Eve. Could it be like a Bene Gesserit plot where like the spirit wants to set you up with someone to manipulate the bloodlines of the village so it makes your future husband so that it can manipulate you into doing witchcraft to sell your soul so that you can then seduce that person successfully and that seems very likely doesn't it yeah yeah uh, plans within plans i think we don't quite yeah i think it's worth pointing out that I mean, it feels obvious and a little condescending to point out but like just the importance of those divinations about who of the 30 people i know who am i going to end up marrying that's a very different kind of question and also speaks to i don't want to call it fatalism but a certain pre-modern emphasis on I just need to know what to prepare for. Will the kid die? Which of us will die first? Those kinds of things. The traps of having a divination that starts with not just tossing the apple peel onto the ground, but the ones where it's like when something breaks or falls when you get to the letter. And it was like, have you ever considered starting at the end of the alphabet and going backwards just to give those poor people names? Right. Ants. All those poor thieves have uh, t- taken on the name of Zebulon so that they don't yeah. get uh, so easily uh, fingered for it. Yeah, yeah. John the Baptist is such an interesting, because it's so prominent, the, the worship of the veneration of, I should say, technically, it becomes a, a major force of synchronization. So yeah, not just with Sahua and, and the rain gods, but was it Tijong in, in Bodu of being the, John the Baptist's baby? There's obviously, and there's some houses that, that some societes that, that work with John the Baptist as their own, as its own deity, as its own lua. Right. Uh, but the, the notion of, of Tijan Danto, Tijan Petro being tied to John the Baptist. But I will just say that those are things that you can read about because I will not speak with authority on those things. I don't know why I'm Eartha Kit when I say that. <laughs> okay, so moving from the specific, from general herbs, I've read stuff on, gosh, lavender, leaves and flowers, calamint, rue, rosemary, wormwoods, as well as verbena or vervain, elderberry, garlic, onion. Or even red currants and hawthorn berries, uh, believed to protect against evil on the day. But uh, we elected to speak specifically about St. John's wort, which is a great example of that notion of you are not necessarily served just by having a bunch of theoretical knowledge. Many herbalists, right, uh, of various schools have notions. You've said this before, you know, that, that there are many traditions where you can't work with a plant unless you've met it, unless you've met it in nature doing its thing. Even if you can identify 200 from really good photographs, it's considered that you must breathe with the plant, uh, for instance. And so in, in, you know, in finding Hypericon, right, in finding St. John's Wort, you find that it, funnily enough, is under the celestial sign of Leo and therefore grows around the time that, that the sun is in Leo. So it's interesting that it's a, it's a wound herb, I think, is the, is the one of its primary things. Certainly Culpepper calls it that. He says it's a singular wound herb that it can heal inward hurts and bruises, uh, as well as open obstructions, or he says it closes up the lips of wounds uh, as well, and talks about various different preparations of it from what the seed does to what the herb to what the flowers do. 
And this kind of, this idea of being the blood of the sun is really interesting to me as well, that it looks so typically solary and yellow and, it, but then it's also a wound hurt because of its perforations, but also because it, it, it produces this, this very dark green that looks red in the sunlight. The blood of the sun exposed to the sun starts oh, to, to take on these qualities. Having had to make it many times. Mm. So it is the oil produced by the immature buds that is red. Mm. And a lot of stuff sold as oil of St. John's wort. It is not just dark green that it looks red. It, it's red. Yeah. The dark green comes from other parts of the plant being used. And that's an important distinction because there was a campaign against St. John's wort in the 90s, maybe it was the 80s, where because of its antidepressant properties, which is used for mild to, mild to moderate seasonal depression, it is not recommended for anybody who is having suicidal ideation or things like this. Meaning you are not, if you have had depression for six weeks, eight weeks, St. John's wort might be the thing to help it go away. But if you have a lifetime history of it, it needs to be tested. But the, what, they, what was specifically done is that the people who tried to disprove it only used the leaves. Hmm. We tested St. John's wort, it does nothing. But that has no other hypercell. So there was this, pro, there's this always been this war, especially in this country, because I don't know if you're familiar with the creation of the AMA on Carnegie and what it is, but it was specifically so that big pharma and regulation could be done to control the medicine of the people and create doctors that were unified and tied to business. So herbalism was stamped out as quackery, as opposed to something like Commission E in Germany, which in the 90s did a full study of herbalism and people are trained in how to apply herbalism. But St. John's Word is one of those ones that is absolutely touted as like how people have declared war on, on medical herbalists. There is no regulating force of herbalism in this country. And many people still forget that. In the United States, there is no nothing that says any certificate of herbalism is valid with the exception of if you are a TCM practitioner, you can get your fourth year certificate that says you understand the 350 herbal mentions, um, which includes things like starfish and, and stones and, and dragon bones and deer antler as herbs, but there is nothing that regulates it. So St. John's Wort has a, a very complex history. It's also saw horrible things happen in the 90s with it because it, it plays on that one little part of the liver where it, it interferes with the certain HIV med- medications. Oh, um, so it's contraindicatory for those. And there are a whole class of herbs that are like this, that are all related to St. John's wort. But not all of them. It's a family of plants. But certainly the, the notion that a lot of St. John's wort oil is colored because they didn't bother too hard. It's you have to watch the plant. It doesn't always make its buds at the same time. And right. you can also see buds on a plant that is also flowering. So it, it doesn't all bloom at the same time. So you really actually have to know your stuff. When the bud is there, you go. And if you crush the bud, when it's immature, it will leave red stains on your fingers. It bleeds. So you chop the head of the plant off and it bleeds. <laughs> so it, it takes in this, it's a wonderful thing in that, that. Yes, it's yellow and it has this beautiful five, it, tiny, but five petaled blossom that, that bursts out. That looks like something exploding, like a microscopic virus picture almost. Yeah. And the leaves themselves, yes, it's the wounds of the leaves. Because if you hold them up to the sunlight, they have their tight thousands of little pinpricks all over them, mm. um, which associates it with the stars as well, which mm. also has it um, linked to prophecy that when you put the leaves in your mouth in water that's gathered on St. John's Day, it allows the spirit of God to move into you because it's perforated your, your spirit mm. that way or scrubbing your skin or even beating your skin with the with stalks of the leaves. The leaves have an incredible bitter use as well, which bitters have their own thing. But- it's an amazing plant just for the medical herbalism side as well. And it's 
place in medical herbalist his herbalism history of being the thing that's touted up of this amazing mood changer mm-hmm. as well as antiseptic anti- antibiotic action through the oil it's certainly one of the quintessential salves that that every herbalist is supposed to have in their in their thing is like add beeswax to the ro- to the oil that you made with the St. John's wort flowers because this is the battlefield first aid kit but it's also not easy to make it's certain over the counter antibiotics are, are much easier but perhaps harsher and it's just a fascinating thing because of all the things that are gone. It's tied to the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller. Hospitalier. I'm not sure the, whether it's French or oh, yeah. um, something, but is linked to that. So it's heavily studied still. It, it has some gap intestinal distress associated with it if you are allergic to it. But it also causes uh, photosensitivity, which is a fun thing. Right. This solary herb that, yeah, that can make us more sensitive to light. And eventually in, in higher doses, I think you told me this, it can, it can start messing with eyesight, right? Yes, it can. As can things like wormwood is the classic one for that, which is another St. John's Eve plant, uh, the purging there. But the, if you overdose on absinthe, you become obsessed with the color yellow. Hmm. Start seeing trails with yellows and orange. I've heard hmm. no direct experience of such things. Hmm. Uh, but uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> it's interesting when we talk about using uh, the different parts of the plant and understanding when and where to bring those in. And that's, which brings to mind that issue about the difference between using the whole plant or the whole willow bark rather than, is it, like, that's the example that, that, that often gets, I've heard quoted at me a couple of times that like, you can overdose on aspirin, but you can't overdose on the willow bark containing aspirin because it also contains things that will, you know, act as an emetic before you take enough to do substantial damage to yourself. I don't know if that's true. That's uh, the legend of it. It would make sense also just because eating bark is not something we're designed to stomach. Right. John's words, certainly cows can have problems with it. There's definitely issues with the livestock poisoning that happens. Sheeps, goats, horses, cows, they get weirdly restless on it. So mm-hmm. it, it adds to the solarness of it, right? That they consume this solar plant large doses because it tastes doesn't taste bad to them, but they start um, praying. They their heads start bobbing, and they start <laughs> strange. Oftentimes, they're they get overheated easily, or their legs give out. They fall into a state of depression based on the toxicity of the plant. So, like literally, their back legs might give out, and their heads are bobbing. So it's such that they look like they were praying. They're filled with a solar virtue, but it's not good when your livestock gets poisoned. I'm struck by the, in that model of what we use it for, uh, quote, more magically, along with a lot of the strictly medical therapeutic regimens of its use, which should be understood as also obviously existing within a context where certain things that we moderns would call magical were, were not considered such, or were just considered, you know, or insert disclaimer about natural magic. But it, it strikes me that a lot of the time it's used more explicitly magically that I'm familiar with in, in a bunch of cunning craft of the British Isles is that it's, it's most often put in a bag, a little charm bag that's worn around the neck, and often with uh, a little scrap of prayer with versicles or names of God or the archangels or simply a, a, a variety. Like So Joseph Blagrave, for instance, when he writes his astrological physics, he's, yes, he's an astrological physician, but he's also a kind of, of a cunning man. And he talks about the use of uh, it, a select number of solary herbs gathered at the hour of the sun, put in a bag and hung around the patient's neck 
in the curing of all kinds of evil. So again, this notion of not just using the whole plant, but using the whole emblems and versicles of the power of the plant. It's certainly a five-petaled flower, which is not an uncommon thing in nature, but it's going to immediately evoke the, the pentaph or the pentagram, therefore, Jesus' nature of things. Midsummer is such a busy time magically that it, I think it's one of those times where once you start getting involved in, especially, obviously, I'm trying to not say uh, witchcraft as a, as a larger contextual term, but especially in Western European witchcraft traditions, that it takes weeks to plan for and you are busy all day long. And it's a good thing there is more daylight because there's just so many things you have to do pre-out, pre-dawn, the night before, on dawn of, all these other things, gathering things under the noon sun and things like this, whether it's using things for cleansing, whether you're making things for love or fertility, there's so much that is done on this day specifically and what's tied to it. So St. John's Wort becomes the emblem of the day because of the name heavily. And there are many other St. John's herbs, but this is the one that is like, you know, it's kind of like, um, like even Queen Anne's lace is sometimes linked to John the Baptist, <laughs> but we don't hear that folk name repeated as much because the Queen Anne's lace thing, first off, which Queen Anne are they talking about? Cause that's its own issue. And <laughs> just up there it's, there's a little drop of black red in the middle of Queen Anne's lace flower, which is said to be where the head was chopped off. And therefore it's the Elizabethan ruffle. Uh, but yeah. One explanation, modern explanation of why it's called that. Um, because it's really just wild carrot, right? So yeah. like, what, what can it be? But even that is, is denoted as the flower reminding us of John's purity and the head is chopped off. And therefore we have a little stain of blood there, which is answered for in the hypericum flower. And again, a deeply poisonous, right? You can eat the wild carrot. You, the, it's just, it's conflated. The problem is that Queen Anne's lace, it looks like poison hemlock. And if you're not very good at herb identification, you can mistake <sighs> uh, Wild carrot, carrot greens are particularly amazing, um, but you can, the carrots themselves, if you put a carrot in the plant in the garden, within a few years, it will turn to Queen Anne's lace. It will modify the, through, through successive generations. It just goes wild again. <laughs> it rewilds. <laughs> it rewilds. Do you want to segue into pyrite as far as? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So again, fire mysteries, right? Pyrite from pyre or pyros, originally, uh, supposedly because it's one of its main uses is, is as a tinderbox kind of thing, right? It, it produces sparks when struck against stone or metal. And so it's, it's the stone that either contains fire or, or is the herald of fire, shall we say? I, I found a straight line saying it was also used in firearms at one time, uh, but it says this function is now obsolete. So it's as a mineral, as a stone, it's the most common sulfide mineral on the Earth's surface. And I got a little bit stuck into one a geochemist, David Rickard's Natural History of Fool's Gold, which is imaginatively called Pyrite, A Natural History of Fool's Gold. And it's like a, it's a, a public version or like a written for a public audience version of, of a thesis he did. And he points out its presence in ancient Sumerian texts and Greek philosophy and, and medieval poetry and as this kind of emblem of things overvalued, right? The, the fool's gold side of it. Which is sad because that side of it is hard for me because the plant, the stone has so many properties on its own as a virtuous thing yeah, or as any gem, but it's because it's this thing of fool's gold, this whole other school of thought comes in with it of like, you were scammed with it or even the use of it to represent pulling the wool over somebody's eyes. Uh, 
which is really interesting in light of similitude. So rather than saying, oh, that thing looks like that thing, so it's the fake version of it and we shouldn't trust it, as opposed to, oh, it may share some of the qualities thereof. Yeah. And certainly, like, when we, when you find that in, like, Orisha herbalism, if a plant resembles another plant very strongly and has many similarity properties, it's said to be the, the servant or the emissary of that plant and can be used to contact the master. Yet the idea that a tree can stand in for another tree because it has certain properties or there's mythological packs in addition to phytochemical similarities, but that the different kalanchoes and hearkening back to kalanchoes. So, so there's, yeah, I was going to say, so there's a sequence of, or a hierarchy even, of this is the older plant and this is the young one that it looks like. Or even the sense that like here we find a plant that is more virtuous, filled with, or whatever the, the whether it's uh, medical virtue, magical virtue, physical virtue, which are often all related, of course, but that you find something, you go, oh, this is obviously hard. It's trying to be like this other plant. So therefore the other plant can be pulled in because for most purposes, it's almost, oh. So you go to a hospital and there's a level of people you need to interact with that are all representing medical authority. And being the child of two nurses, I will not automatically put doctors at the pinnacle of that. There, there are different qualities of service, not qualities, depending on the person, yes, but different types of care that are, that are afforded by each person in those things. And some people, there's an algorithm that can be followed, like a physician's assistant um, versus a nurse practitioner and do certain things like prescribe medication. So are you following an algorithm and going like down the list of, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's this. Is it something along the lines of, this is out of my pay grade and now I need to pass you off to somebody else. I don't mean to just make that with medical hierarchy. No, 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 but it's, it's anything. Like you, I need to, it's, can you carry out and be like, I need to speak to the manager. But mm-hmm. for most purposes, if you're just making an average transaction, you don't have to speak to the manager. <laughs> It's just such a, a, a fascinating model of actual interrelation between plants rather than, or, or stones or whatever it is, a fascinating instance of how to work sympathy and similitude uh, as opposed to just, again, just ranking them on an abstract, either hierarchy or appeal to an idealism. They, they both have incarnadine virtue. They're, they're both red and so must speak to some redness as opposed to how do the actual plants relate to each other rather than to some abstracted other? I didn't realize that the gold flecks in lapis lazuli, uh, lazuli uh, is pyrite. And I also wanted to ask you, I, I read something that looked suspiciously ill-informed about the, quote, Incas of Peru, as well as the, quote, Aztecs of southern Mexico, uh, were known to polish large slabs of pyrite and use its shiny surface to gaze into like a mirror. Is this, uh, is this something you've ever come across? Yeah, pyrite mirrors are known in Mexico. Okay. But any stone that you can shine easily that reflects in that way, it's, right. it, by modern terms, it gets it planted of being a solar mirror versus the obsidian being a lunar mirror. But the obsidian is never just a lunar mirror. That's, that's a very kind of neo-pagan split and right. very polarized in that way. The metaphysics of Mexican cosmology there are extremely gender fluid deity fluid much like egyptian practice of gods combined to make new gods and other gods died and turned into new gods at their death and so like the, the fixed properties change of things but pyrite is definitely something that can be used in that way 
Yeah, again, it seems more of a functional feature. It's shining, so you, you use it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, oh, the thing with pyrite too is it occurs in these natural cubes where you're like, why is it so shiny? What is this? <laughs> right. The other way it, it forms, or again, uh, looking at like Rickard's uh, natural history of pyrite, he points out the link to pyrite, how do I say this? Pyritized? Pyritized ammonites. The, the fossils of these coiled mollusks. And they get their name because they're said to resemble the, the ram of Ammon or Ammon. And the Pliny the Elder seems to be the, the start of this, who starts to call these fossils the horns of Ammon, uh, Ammonus Cornua. And so they, they become associated with that whole stream of deities, which, is, which struck me when you're talking about combining deities uh, and we're into uh, the, the vast swathe of kingdoms that gets lumped together as ancient Egypt. Interesting. I mean, and also fool's gold does actually often sit next to actual gold. Right. Yes. Yes. That's one of the ways you can look for it, which is again, fascinating. So again, it's a herald, right? This stone, we didn't, I didn't even go that far with it, but sometimes mm. there's topics that are totally like, this would be fun to talk about. And talk. So like, obviously Herodias, St. John's Wort and St. John the Baptist are related, but what tarot card can tie into that? Like, okay, there's probably four or five we're also just trying to narrow down like what we haven't talked about as much. <laughs> right. Well, you know, a, a good game has some good rules, right? It's, it bounds it. Setting us up for success in looking successful at right. successful people's successes. Successfully. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it forms in the same, under the same conditions as actual gold. And so it's a good way of, of finding it, which again, I suppose you could see adds into the notion of some duplicity in it that like you, you think you're, you know, you need to work out which is which. So you could see it as a herald or you could see it as a, you know, someone disguised pretending. Um, what was the other thing? Oh yeah, the, uh, the Peterborough Lapidary, the uh, 15th century manuscript, one of the longest of all medieval English treatises on the virtues of stones, which there was a relatively recent edition done by Dr. Francis Young. And there they quote Isidore and say it's, oh, that, that's it. And witches say that it has that name because men suppose that it refines hastiness and wrath of hearts, as Isidore says in his Summer of Gems. Uh, so there's this very choleric quality to it as well, supposedly. And specifically the, the line is, and witches say that it's used for this thing. <laughs> which is, yeah, which is, which is really interesting in terms of the practices of the others. And Lakuto in his lapidary, just in terms of going over the, the the usual things that I end up digging through, points out that pyrite is used uh, in a ligature against evil spells as well. So the idea of binding it to you, which again, I don't know. I tend to think of in my head, pyrite sits adjacent to fairy gold as well uh, in terms of fake golds. But rather than it being a thing that has gone in the morning, leaving only dry leaves, it's it sticks around. But well aware of its of its kind of like I, I never said I was I was that thing. You know, you you assume I use it a lot in, in in Fortuna Minor works, right? As distinct from the the gold of Fortuna Major, but it has its own functions, and especially that hastiness and that quickness and that concern with anger is also a very Fortuna Minor kind of quality. You know, you brought up the Mexican use of it of mirrors in general, so not necessarily just fool's gold, pyrite mirrors or obsidian mirrors, but the idea of, I think it's in Huichol, which is uh, there in the state of Nayarit in Mexico, the, the peyote people, um, they're the ones with the blue deer mythology, oh, uh-huh. but uh, Huichol, the Huirica, they, I believe the word is a dual meaning of face. So the word for mirror that is used also implies face. Mm-hmm. And there's a relationship then between the mirror and the face that is of course. as of the reflection. 
Because it's then based on use value again. Like what is the actual lived experience of engaging with a mirror? And the only time you see your face is in a reflection. Right. It's what you might see. It brings up the whole pupil thing, right? That, that right. reversed upside down doll in the, in the pupils of the people across from you. Mm. And up the modern Nahuatl in general revi- revere, consider the, the sky its own form of mirror has metaphysical properties, of course, there, but that it's a crystal mirror that we are seeing parts of, of divine fire through. And then I definitely know there is a group of cultures that refer to the sun as the mirror. Like people would say the bright sun or the yellow sun or father's sun, that it's sometimes a special sun, which is mirror sun, which is interesting that the countenance of God is also tied into that too, which is interesting. Just, they're talking about the fire of St. John's Day and what this right. is. A fool's gold, I, I, the notion of the fool, yeah, but of, of also just the damage that, that that word is now received, that calling someone a fool isn't necessarily, does not have to be, let's say, um, because you can unfortunately play both sides of this argument and just call someone a fool and say, but I meant it in the positive way. Right. No words have connotation. I'm just so enamored by your innocence. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty double-sided, right? And it, it brings up the idea of a holy fool. And what yeah. that, and obviously, uh, for me, I say obviously to Al, because I understand that there are other people listening. So let me explain there. My obviously here, in the sense that the 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 archetype of the holy fool is a big part of something my theater group has explored, as in the theater group I I have been with for fourteen years, not the theater group that I started. It existed long before me, uh, but Jechi, and understanding holy fool as to what that is, previous to Lady Gaga's use of the word, but the notion of innocence that comes with it that's tied into even theatrical clown versus uh, circus clown right. and have common origins but the idea of when when are clowns bad when they are sexual or when they're violent as opposed to innocent you can be right. have hints of those things but a, you know, a child is not sexual it's not murdering people that's when it's it breaks it breaches the the container we allow for a clown to be this other thing and certainly Theatrical clown is not necessarily looking like the the scariness of the hobo clowns and the performative circus clowns, but fool itself. I remember uh, when one of the members got married, we we did a fool's mass for her wedding. And so she just agreed to show up and it was going to be all fine. So we spent months planning it. Do you want to give a little context to what a fool's mass is? Um, so there's, there's already this esoteric implication behind what a fool's mass is. It is an actual tradition, uh, like the Feast of Fools itself, the Festum Fatuorum which is especially Western European and very French, where they would elect a false bishop, false pope, the anti-pope, if you will. And it's directly an outpouring or a relationship to perhaps Calends or Saturnalia or things like that. So it's a reversal of roles. And it is a way of uh, king for a day type of mentality. And it's, it's, it's a mass led by fools, basically, right? Yes. And in this case, for us as a group, before I joined, they were working on something else and decided that they needed to understand the Catholic Mass better for a piece. They, they were working on a production of Devils of Loudon, and many of the group were not Catholic. And so the Mass, in order to be engaged with, they wanted to understand it from the point of view of children without the baggage that they had associated with it. And so uh, exploring the Mass in this way started an exploration with buffoonery and uh, the Holy Fool as uh, worked through with creative humiliation and understanding these types of things. I mean, clowning is some of the most challenging theatrical work you can do to do it well. 
And it's something I recommend for anybody that's a performer to go through clowning training. And that could include things like Commedia, but Commedia is another uh, tradition. It does build upon some of those things. I've thoroughly enjoyed the, the Fool's Masses that I've seen uh, you and, and uh, do as part of Chechi. And I just the story framing of the idea of a set of medieval characters attempting as best as they can to honor the memory of the priest who has invited them in uh, on the eve who then dies and they, they try and honor his memory by doing this absurd version of the mass, which at one point is like incredible. I've never laughed and cried at the same time so hard in terms of this is not just veering between sacred and profane, but is doing both in terms of just how misunderstood and garbled the mass is on the one hand, but how the, the intent behind it is to, is such a, seems such a noble one. And the way you guys play with that, it's, it's uh, it was just brilliant. Yeah, it's definitely taught me a lot. In 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 general, it, it is very much tied into the, what is the fool. Um, there are plenty of times where people have felt that we are making fun of our characters, and it's the furthest thing from the truth. And some people that get offended and walk out or scream or whatever it is, it's always interesting when those things happen with with theater and how you deal with those. Yeah. But I do think that um, it's one of our most popular pieces and something that's been worked on consistently for, oh God, 18, 19 years. I've been with the group for 14 years. So the wedding, you decided to do a fool's mass for one of the names of Jackie? wedding, including a, um, uh, we, one of the, the tropes in it is to bring out a sheep sacrifice, which is a puppet. And it gets interrupted and we, we turn it to a human sacrifice, which is the bride and the groom through, through mild acrobatics, right? Having them walk on shoulders and hands and things like this. And then jumping off of, of people standing up. So having the audience come up, but they gave out fool's gold as a, a favor that day. Oh. And it was an interesting thing because it's also this thing of it's like, first off gold is, is actually very expensive. <laughs> so gold is best preserved for is best reserved for perhaps the bride and groom, but yeah. the that everyone can share in it in this thing. And again, that Fool's Gold itself has such an interesting, it, it changed my relationship with Fool's Gold after that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's such a beautiful, it's certainly something that like, as far as if you're going to make a solar lamp, like you can get a big old pretty piece of Fool's Gold um, in there real quick. And it's got gorgeous solar virtue. And you can put a small little gold nugget in there. Sure. But it's, there are other things than just the pinnacle, just because the metal of the sun is now popularly reduced to only gold. Right. Um, we, don't really, we don't really have that with any of the others. I guess silver and, and the moon. But yeah, it, it, like the idea of there being any other solar uh, uh, gems or, or metals or whatever is, is very much a second or even third thought sometimes. Yeah. I like it for its quickness for that reason. Again, like the, that choleric thing uh, and the use of like almost expedite kind of stuff of like uh, solar virtues that you need like now as as opposed to fortuna majors yeah no i'm agreeing with you i i really like your association of it with fortuna minor it makes yeah. perfect like getting the bills paid is very different than becoming a millionaire uh, yeah yeah what, the dumb luck or the quick fix you need it could be terrible could be putting a band-aid on something that needs serious structural adjustment but it might also be the duct tape that keeps the thing together until you can get it to the garage. I was struck by in terms of returning to the full card i, I think a little part of me just assumed Il Mato was, was, the, was the closest translation to the word for fool, but the archaic words are often translated as the madman or the beggar as often, right? Uh, and that's, that's really telling looking at the earlier versions with the tarot deck, one of the older ones, where he's got his ragged clothes, but they're not patchwork, they're ragged. And the stockings without shoes and maybe still carries the, the stick, but it's more of a, 
a, a random stick he's found in the forest rather than, you know, a nice neat walking staff with a bindle tied to the end. There are feathers in his hair, right? He's got this unruly, you know, hair and, and beard and, and seems very related to this longer tradition of the wild man or the, the wood woes. Which is interesting because in the kind of French cardomantic traditions, which tend to be leered towards the aristocratic use or court games, where it shifts from the beggar into the jester. And there's the conflation of those two things heavily happens in the French cards. And therefore you get the joker of poker playing card. But I don't know, it's, it's something it's, for the fool card itself. The little dog is always such an, it's such a little dog too. Like, right. like a purse dog, mm-hmm. Paris Hilton dog. But yeah, it's interesting. Isn't it related to, Le Mat is related to Checkmate or something? When I saw a stray reference to that. Yeah. Is that what that is? Because it, yeah, it said something around this emerges around the, the fact that these, these quote unquote tarot cards were being used in a variety of other gaming. There's a, a tradition. I was, trying, I was like, I'm trying to not give more space between my words so that Al can interrupt me again and share what his wisdom is. Le Mat, of course, bringing up Mat, the concept of order. Why people do that lovely extrapolation on all pers- possible permutations of a word. To explore. Oh, oh uh, the Grantian uh, uh, methodology. I like to think of it as a blooming onion, but we can call it Grantian. <laughs> Let's, yeah, why not sit sake and sekmet and what was the other one? There's, there's three uh, that he does with that example. Yeah, yeah, why not? Uh, so it, 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 it is unfortunately a little bit like, like a marijuana mushroom hybrid high. Uh, <laughs> this word starts with B and this word starts with B and this word starts with B. Yeah. And it finds with B and me. Yeah, uh, and if we put B on its side, it looks like two hills. And if we yeah, love that stuff. Yeah. Okay, so the Fool itself as a card uh, does imply journey. It implies change. It implies a willingness to embrace the unknown or a need to embrace the unknown and the journey over the destination. There's the lore of the Fool card that I'm sure we've already talked about, but the idea of the, even the fact that it was a, a stick, a baton before, that suddenly becomes the one that is the the knapsack that is empty on the start when it's the zero card and it's full when it's at the end. The bindle. Yeah. And and is either zero or completely unnumbered, which again makes me think of like wild man, uh, the notion of the, a lack of enculturation. It is, it, it, it's it's uh, uh, a quality over quantity. It's, it's somehow, I don't know, brings to mind conceptions of nature and, whether, you know, fund- the fundamental question of mathematics, whether or not it is part of the natural world or if it's a uh, kind of imposition upon it. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the, the whole concept of zero, right? So it's not a universally, it's a, there are cultures that developed the concept of zero. This is one of the reasons that like Mayan computations of eclipses are so damn good is because they had a zero as a placeholder. But most counting systems do not have this placeholder zero. There's a concept of none. Mm-hmm. Or empty. And so the words for the word, the number that is zero, the placeholder, are often conflated with things like phrases that mean that which needs to be filled or emptiness or those things that, that evoke that like hunger almost or thirst. Right. Uh, 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 an absence that calls things to it. Yeah. So to, mm-hmm. to say the fool is unknown, I think there is something really beautiful about it being zero as well there in the sense of it, it, it invokes that bag that is needs to be filled through right. the journey through the tarot. And of course, things get standardized and there are so many books about that and there's no point for us to summarize the conflicting, wonderfully conflicting opinions about the origins of the tarot, its use as divination and who standardized. Mm-hmm. 
I'm sold that it's the ancient Egyptians and we'll just go with that story. <laughs> Al Hazred was a really fun, trashy book to read. And, <laughs> um, anyway, but the fool has a certain romanticism with it and it kind of becomes in the same way that the letter A becomes symbolic of the whole alphabet, mm-hmm. the fool becomes symbolic of the whole tarot. There are a few quintessential cards that seem to evoke the whole tarot itself, of which the magician is often given that status because it is the first card, the fool being the beginning or the end or both. And because sometimes, you know, there's, there's sometimes explicit comparison drawn between the tools of the art that the magician holds and the minor arcana, that, that this is the head of the, of the rest of the cards. Or even the aces becoming symbolic of all the minor pips too. Yes. Which... In essence, they contain all of it as it is. So, like, what, what is the what is the card that contains everything? The fool. The fool right. is the, the one who sets off on the journey. These ragged mountains. The mountains are decreasing in height, which is interesting. So he's coming mm-hmm. out from something apparently, mm-hmm. uh, and jumping off the cliff down into the great world. So it's that thing of midsummer has ended, right? right? You are past the zenith of the sun, and you're taking what you learn at this full period of the height, the the, the tops of the mountains, and you're proceeding in. Uh, yeah, it, it makes me think of breath again as well, partly from uh, some debate about how old this attribution is, but the notion of the fool is associated with primal air and therefore with the breath and the idea of the descent into things. And again, back to spirit and breath and air and inspiration and, and what, what comes from on high down into the world with its uniquely uncultured optimism or, or journey or, or transformation. There's also the fools that I'm stuck on the mountains there because it reminds me just the notion of descending the mountain. Mm. There are more people die coming down the mountain than going up. Going up, you can turn around and say, I can't do this. I need to go back. But it's this thing of it ties into a lot of esoteric work we have to do when we have an experience. It's like when we talked about pilgrimage. The pilgrimage is what happens when you leave the place of pilgrimage. Truthfully, that is the test of the pilgrimage. How do you enter the world again? Yeah. And there's something to that where you have these amazing experiences, but you don't know how to integrate them into your daily life. And then we end up with weird, you know, Sunday religions where you only think about God for an hour on a Sunday and there and think that you're devout. It's not about who's better or not. It's just one of those things of like, is that truly relinking you to God? There was a study done definitely, and it analyzed the the, the majority of the deaths occur on the descent of the mountain. And it's because mm-hmm. something is relaxed. You think that you've accomplished, you forgetting that you're forgetting that the journey is the goal and that the summit of the mountain was perhaps the reward, but it's the midpoint at best. Yeah. And that the, the similarly, I remember going for, I grew up in the mountains outside Los Angeles. And when I would hike with my father, he was big on that, that like going down, it's much easier to climb up the rock face than to go down it. It takes more skill, more concentration, you know, like you can go up a steep rock face cause you can, or uh, just a path that is at a certain grade. And you can lean forward and as long as you have a good grip, you're fine. But now your gravity is fighting against you and your momentum is fighting against you. Having to sit down and scuttlebutt down the mountain because you're not prepared to have your momentum get the best of you. Yeah, I love that, actually. Again, it seems to track somewhat to, you know, our ongoing reflections about initiation as well. The idea of it not being a, it, it being something that, that you continue to integrate and that you continue to explore, not hitting the peak and being like, great, now I've conquered this mountain uh, and therefore don't need to, to walk it anymore as opposed yeah. to, yeah. Just to clarify, I'm specifically speaking to the rider weight fool that mm-hmm. it, it is not, as, it's often flat plains or a few hills. 
in some of the older depictions. But mm-hmm. uh, the Rider Waite specifically has the fool going from right to left. And there are higher mountains on the right where he is holding a white rose, I think, and about to jump off or walk off the cliff while looking loftily away from the sun, which is also at the top of the peak. And the white rose is sandwiched between the white dog and the sun. There's- so it's often talked about in terms of the Wiley Coyote cartoon physics of the fool who steps over the abyss or the, the, the precipice and who doesn't fall because they aren't scared of falling. I think maybe it's good to touch on Herodias a little bit, another bigger topic, but in, in the plays of the story, we're dealing with, I think, Matthew and Mark and Luke. So the, the Q Gospels all talk about it. John is curiously absent, this narrative, because John doesn't care about the infancy. But the preternatural world is fine. In the beginning, the word was with God. But that Herod has John arrested and put him in prison because, her, because of Herodias. And John is saying that it's against the law because you're not divorced yet, really, is what it is. And Herod wants to put him to death, but he fears the civil unrest of basically making a martyr out of him as of the, ter- the turmoil that Judea is in uh, with the Roman occupation. And he's the, he's the Maharaja, right? He is state-sanctioned, meaning Roman-sanctioned leader of the kingdom of Judea. And there is no mention of the name of the daughter in the, Bi- in the Bible, but we assume by tradition that it's Salome. And that there is this manipulation by Herodias, who is so offended that she is called out for her now relationship with him, that she calls for the head of the Baptist by asking Salome, because Herod is lusting after Salome, and she does the Dance of the Seven Bales by tradition, and her reward is the head of the Baptist. So there's this incredible biblical narrative that has been romanticized and mythologized and incorporated into uh, the various streams of magic and witchcraft that, that might use such narratives. And Herodias becomes this figure of this ambitious, conniving woman who is living in sexual sin, who does what she wants and can use seduction, even that of her daughter, in order to get what she wants. I, I ended up getting stuck into Nevadas uh, and the, the 12th century book of all of the, um, it's mainly, what's it called? Yisengrimus? Uh, uh, it's mainly about, what's his face? The Yisengrin, the wolf. But it also has like Reynard the fox and it's a bunch of you know, anthropomorphic fables written towards the uh, mid 12th century. But it also has a central telling of the and, and John story. And I think from what I'm, I've read of, of analyses of it, it actually subsumes Herodias fully into Salome and it adds in the the witch flight via the notion that John's head repels her with its breath and this ghostly wind like blows her out of the out of the building and like uh, you know she's blown through a hole in the roof in a kind of like again a kind of acme wily coyote shaped uh (laughs) right and so this is referred to the the Spanish medieval texts called the the aerial dance right the La Danza Aérea. Which conflates her with the Aurora Borealis. Aha, okay. Well, that's not as commonly viewed down there, but like that, that, that notion of the dancing lights when uh, Spanish people would go up to and see the Northern Lights, that it's like, oh, that's Herodias. That's her dancing. That's the yeah. Salome. Yeah, you know, that's the thing, right? So it's the breath, the last breath of the prophetic breath of mm-hmm. John the Baptist when his head is chopped off. It goes into that and pushes her through the roof, screaming like the White Witch of Narnia dancing in the skies forever 
And what really happened to them, according to Josephus, which is how we know of Salome's name, this is also the first mention of Jesus as a, that there were followers of a man named Jesus, mm-hmm. the first historical reference to Jesus. In, um, in the antiquities, right? Yes. That both Herodias and Salome die through ice, which I find fascinating, right? So oh. Herodias simply dies by walking across a frozen lake and falling in. She, okay, so in addition to all the weird stuff that happens with the marriages, so Herodias divorces Philip. There are so many Herods, so many Herods. Yeah, Herod Philip, who then Salome ends up marrying after their divorce goes through. Yeah. Daughter marries the the stepdad. It's very telenovela. Yeah, it, it it is extremely that. So this is, wherefore the just vengeance of God burned against all who were concerned in this crime. Herod was defeated by Aretas. Afterwards, he was banished with Herodias to Lyon. Uh, to life and deprived of his tetrarchy and everything by Caligula. Hear what Nisiphorus says. As she was journeying, this is about Salome, as she was journeying once in the wintertime and a frozen river had to be crossed on foot, the ice broke beneath her, not without the providence of God. Straight away, she sank down up to her neck. This made her dance and wriggle about with all the lower parts of her body, but not on land, but in the water. Her wicked head was glazed with ice and at length severed from her body by the sharp edges, not of iron, but of frozen water. Thus, in very ice, she was displaying the dance of death, a furnished to a spectacle to all who beheld it, which brought to mind what she had done. Oof. So she echoed, like, here we have water being turned into a weapon of the Baptist already, but water here is not used to baptize, but to sever. And there's this dance that she dances again one last time, struggling to try and be free from this. There is absolute conflation of Herodias and, and Salome as of the same ilk here. And Herodias becomes this amazingly referenced witch figure in Spain, in France, and in Italy, in just as this fascinating proto-witch of manipulation. And it's this fear of ambitious women, for sure. You get this with, it's the Clytemnestra factor. Of, <laughs> if a man did what Clytemnestra did, we would be fine. But the fact that she, and I love her, the display in, um, uh, which one of the plays, where she rolls out a red carpet from the door to greet her husband, meaning the word for door and vagina are the same there. So she <laughs> out the vent seat. You're like, oh, we will walk upon this. So then it, it forever changes my idea about red carpets of this. Oh, this is woman power. This is fascinating. This is there's something interesting that. And Herodias is such an interesting figure when she's depicted in plays where you go to. I have to change the pronunciation just Salome because it's Oscar Wilde, but like. Herodias becomes this very strange figure in addition to just Salome herself. I find it, I love the conflation of it. It, it Herodias becomes the, the as we said, the, the anti-hagiographic, the, the, the demonic blur there. <laughs> she becomes the summation of all the things that are conflated with her as well. So now in modern witch practice, there's this calling upon, well, it's Herodias and we don't really know what the original source was. So the only thing we have to go off of is Herodias. So the mentions of Herodias as having altars shared with Diana means that she's with her, with Diana somehow. And Diana becomes the mother of all witches because of the maiden virgin thing and the moon. But it's not really the same Diana, but it is, but it isn't. And also she's flying through the sky by the 12th century. By the 13th century, she's encouraging other people to join her on this night flight. And so starts being, so it's the Holder associations, right? I love it. Herodias, as far as a witch goddess, I think is... One of my favorites, one of the the names that I have absolutely fallen in love with over the years, and one that I don't see as popular except in its permutation as Aradia, which 
is fine. Uh, it's just that's not where I'm going with her. For sure, yeah. It's it's interesting seeing as we're talking about her frames, uh, not just as a uh, mythic witch figure or proto-witch or even witch goddess, but also this kind of, this diabolical, this demonic component, the, the demonological blur. Sabbat lore is interesting in terms of her not spasmodically or, or erratically dancing through the sky, but enthroned, sitting in judgment over her devotees, some of whom of which are rewarded and, and others of whom are, are punished. Just the leader of the witches in this way. She is revered amongst the fairies, amongst the witches in this way. Fascinating. She is, I mean, Herodias in the, in the larger accounts lacks the modern interpretation of Aradia being like this woman of the people, but the Leland account of her being like this, there is something in there too, where it's somewhere between the kind of modern permutation of it as has been filtered through neo-paganism and kind of revitalized and going back to the Leland text. We did talk about Aradia on the assumption of the Virgin Mary episode. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's good to connect these things up to, so yeah, to, to, to ongoing bits and pieces. Do you think it's, it's sometimes said that the, the her getting blown into the sky by the last breath of J the B, that's sometimes said to be one of the, to usher in the belief that witches fly. I wonder what you made of that. It feels like a backwards justification because we, we certainly hear about ideas of different forms of travel with witches. Yeah. World wars, but certainly I don't like, uh, for me, I don't necessarily like looking for or reasons for everything. No, uh, but I'm no, not a great sense of like, okay, great. Yes, that's wonderful. Let's conflate it. In the sense that, yes, she even allowed witches to fly through this breath. And it's through the power of, of, of John the Baptist that this happens. And yeah. part of that is because John the Baptist was taught by another uh, desert mother who was not Christian or Jewish, but was actually like, there's lo- all this lore that goes into it. That mm-hmm. like John the Baptist's mouth was opened through in some lovely esoteric things of it was, I haven't heard that it was a Coptic person, but pre-Christian Copt. But the idea that the mouth was opened so that he became a living vessel of prophecy of God. And they right. were like, and we play into the idea of uh, or, or the diviner's breath here of that. Not only is it the ability to predict, but it's the ability to make things happen because you predicted them. And there's, that's the relationship and the struggle there that John the Baptist makes Jesus who he is because he has announced his coming. And so right. people are expecting it a certain way. And it refines the prophecies of the text of the tongues of prophets now dead but it's reanimated in the same way, which plays on my whole love of necromancy of textual relationship and transmission. But John the Baptist's mouth itself is somehow different. It is now the, the lyre of Orpheus. Voice ushers prophecy. It goes into that nature. It makes Herodias and curses her without even cursing her. That it's right. the natural exhalation of God. The Ruach now moves across the turbulent waters mm-hmm. and punishes her in that she inhales that breath and she herself yeah, that's part of it too. It's not only that she's blown away, but she breathes that breath and it, uh, it, it inflames her. She's not mm-hmm. a creature that is fit for that breath to be what John the Baptist had it intended for, but she in, is now inflamed with it and has to do something, but she never touches the ground again in many of the lores that follow in Iberia. She dances above the Pyrenees or that she dances across the waters in past the point to the coast of death, which is the end of the world, the Santiago de Compostela and that side of it. So Herodias becomes this inflamed witch queen that uh, this is the plays into even the the notion of Spanish virgins who are enthroned that or are the throne for Jesus themselves in that whole Romanesque period where they're revered and said that they're all, of course, in the East, you have icons that are painted by St. Luke. And in the West, you have sculptures that are made by St. Luke. But I don't know. I love her. I, Herodias is a fascinating figure. It is one of the most 
the, the littlest amounts of lore. <laughs> right. But it, it, because of that, it feels so potent for me when I was in Spain talking to people who all had ideas and stories about Herodias. Mm. Um, as in Karenese, she's, she's there. That this river is the one that she bathed in or that, that this constellation is the one that you can still see her in sometimes. Or right. the time of year when the hot southern winds come up in August, that it's Herodias's horde joining her to empower her. And like the laws change at that time and you can't, you're not accused of murder because the wind makes you mad because it's Herodias's servants coming. Like that, that, that makes me happy. Um, (laughs) And especially since it's just one of those names of, it's a witch goddess. It is not, it is a biblical name, but it is a, it is not a, it's not just a pagan deity. There is something else in there that is very like, what is this? Why? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not going to remember it well, but I was lucky enough to see my my old supervisor, Ronald Hutton, speak about at a, a conference refining a bunch of his essays and work on pre-Christian and and kind of Christian sacred ladies, not even like goddesses or, or, or saints, but the ones that aren't either one or the other clearly that demonstrate a great deal of they're based on earlier things, but they also contain fundamental. The ideological DNA that that means they aren't they can't quite either be put in one or the other. One of those is I think Fortuna, but another one is 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 Holder. Is this not quite completely pre-Christian, but also definitely not explicitly uh, a Christian invention, but some kind of concatenation of those factors, some kind of weaving together of these different streams. And again, that becomes then you know the the mixing cauldron of a witch goddess or a witch queen. That these are references back to things that only expand her, the connections that can be forged. To me, it always goes back to value centers and the idea that if you're serving the fruitful purpose of something is very different from serving the orthodox praxis, orthodox belief in it. And orthodoxy is wonderful for holding onto things that can, that helps us not prevent, prevents us from reinventing the wheel. Right. But there is something about the pragmatism of it that it was only in the 90s that I remember correctly that there was a sudden shift in understanding that the term the old religion in Protestant England might be referring to Catholicism. And that there's now, that's heavily accepted more standardly of understanding Marian worship as now being taken away from a people is its own thing there, that the value center is still there. And so people remember it in that way with something like Holda of certainly there's something it's, she's invoking by the the nature of how it is and fitting into the Christian place, the it's almost like the theory that happens when we take things very literally on a timeline that perhaps certain pagan deities decide like it, it's almost like the which I hope to talk about with Ben for his episode of the conversion of demons to the Dharma in Buddhism. Right. Of did some of these deities be like, we're not gonna beat this wave of Christianity? Like those are the might as well join them. Might as well join them and still get something out of this. Of okay, so I take on this new name like Bridget, or which didn't take on a new name, but it, it, it's just a continuous stream of practice that moves forward. And certainly, if we're dealing with, if we want to be literal, and this is, you know, I can see the the, the mockery now, but that when we're dealing with things that are non-human, if we accept the reality of deities or the reality of spirits, who's to say how these things continue to manifest? They, and certainly, it's a big topic of study for me a fascination in things like the version of guadalupe where people are trying to argue oh she's an aztec goddess oh she's a catholic imposition or why can't she both be both those of us that are sandwiched between those cultures and this warring faction of and the stereotype of spanish daddy and and indigenous mommy that is mexico 
and somehow African uncles and aunts because we don't like to talk about the Black heritage of Mexico because it's still so embedded within its own self-mythologization in racist and practices of the past. It's, yeah, something can be more than one thing. And right. Rodeo right. is one thing. And it's, there are many people that are obsessed with looking to etymology or looking to like documented history. Sure, but to the believer, to the practitioner, those things rarely matter. Doesn't matter if you tell someone that throwing salt over their shoulder doesn't do anything. If they have grown up with that tradition, then they are going to continue it unless they replace it with something else and say it's a waste of salt. And there's, uh, again, integration and all of those lovely terms about, you know, dual observance or about doing that thing when it's time to do that thing doesn't necessarily mean that you stop doing the other thing. Absolutely. Polyvalent belief is actually possible, despite the Christian admonition of you can't serve two masters. Yes, that's true sometimes, except when it's not. Right. I'm sure. <laughs> Again, things that are quoted on this show all the time. Lots of Dune and lots of similar things because we always prove our own points. But Lafayette in True Blood, of the emphasis that like Jesus and him have an open relationship. Yeah, right. The other people, but they're still on good terms. This, yeah. type of thing is, this is understanding hybridity and syncretism and transculturation. This is an important thing, especially when we're dealing with the evolution of magic, which is about practical results of form. Even if the practical results are consciousness shifting or like states of altered consciousness where you, you feel like you understand something better, but it's result-based. And therefore, as has been emphasized many times, like Boisha and things like this are orthopraxic. We recognize the, the praxis as being continuous, but not necessarily the belief that contains it. Absolutely. And the, and, the, and the cultural space, it fits within value centers again, to return to that, of just how far back we can talk about Goisha as a term that means both terribly dangerous black magic with evil graveyard spirits and also the practices of con men. Like this is this is a, a, a sixth century blackening denigration of the term, and so this fits. So even though we're talking about, yeah, there's a lot of quote pre-Christian stuff about Goetia that looks pretty Christian, in the sense of pointing fingers and and, and saying that's the that's the terrible stuff that that good sensible proper people don't do. Yeah. So it's it, it's doing this this uh, it's doing the same role in slightly differently religiously aligned cultures as well. Uh, which again fascinates me when we talk about these nexus points of various influences like the the, the figure of Herodias. Sir, I feel like we've done Herodias a little bit of justice there. Um, yeah. Happy to talk about her for the rest of my life. Uh, <laughs> Herodias, St. John's Wort, Pyrite, the fool. So we have some Tristicia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we should close with Mr. Randall. Yeah, I, I agree. We've talked about, about with sadness before. Well, haven't we talked about <laughs> Hello, I'm out to talk about sadness. It's, I think we remarked on this before. I, I, again, also didn't listen to the last episode just to see what we, the, the last time we talked about Tristicia, just to see what comes through and what doesn't. Uh, sorrow, uh, sorrowful events and saddening thoughts, as well as the mysteries of melancholy itself. So not just the feeling about those things, but the actual thing that causes the feeling. And again, the idea of an interrelationality between your internal state and the external environments. When it falls in a reading, it also speaks of not just tragedies or, or anxious overthinking, but, but the potential for what is often put in the early modern handbooks as crosses, uh, which it defines as curses. Or it, it, it sounds, it looks very similar. And I would love to talk to more practitioners. It looks very similar to the terminology and the, the terms of, of uh, African American country and hoodoo talking about being crossed or crossed up. Uh, this is slightly different. It talks about having crosses laid on you. 
so the cross you bear kind of thing, but it's, it's still referring to a dysfunctional magical condition. So it is the curse, the result of the curse, and the conditions that led to the curse, potentially. It's also uh, a figure tied to black magic in general, uh, the trafficking with souls of the dead and other unclean spirits, land whites and, and devils and things. It's, you know, in practice, it often connotes a, if it falls, if it marks the querent, if it lands in the first house, in my experience, it often marks a querent who is going to overly concentrate on all the bad news to their detriment in not listening to any of the any of the the positives or the potential for those positives. And so they, you know, querents marked especially with sorrow have to be handled particularly carefully because they're gonna concentrate on the doom saying. It's again that thing of sorrow and not just the melancholy of sticking to the heart and making your other passions that which moves us and, and moves through us. Difficult to handle the idea of melancholy sticking to the hearts kind of I think it's a, a very powerful image for being stuck on something, being unable to move past something, uh, and even conditions that other healing modalities might talk about as soul retrieval, as losing a piece of yourself in that condition, that trauma, and fixating around that, the, the notion of melancholy stopping up the heart or sticking to it. But there's also this idea of it being the sound of the sorrow of hollowing yourself out to me, the, the, the idea of not just sorrow, but sorrow at the despair of thinking that it will never be any different and the despondency that you may never be able to overcome your damages. So that, that notion of, of, of what's left when we hollow ourselves out, like there's a lot of presence of absence stuff there for me that's, that's interesting. And then, of course, there's a bunch of sending forth the souls of the deceased to, to do your bidding as well. Tristicia is usually said to be ill for all things except... Uh, necromancy, uh, black magic or necromancy specifically, uh, for which it is very good. Yeah, the ex, the praise of melancholy as the ground in which the fertile <laughs> occult mind grows is interesting side. Well, this is obvious. This, this has to be talked about in relation to the early modern, and it gets called various things, but the early modern turn towards melancholy as, as not just, oh, isn't it fun to be sad or cool or, or interesting, or, or Dono looks dramatic, staring off into the distance. Uh, sad music plays and, and, and the rain falls down the window. Uh, it's, it's also tied to genius and to deep cogitation and of all of the, for want of a better term, like the empowering parts of Saturn. And so it's, yeah, it, it, the idea of, of melancholy is, the, is not just the soil, it's also the, like you say, the, the, the ground of being. And that itself is tied to the idea that this is all a veil of tears and that if you're not sad, you're not paying enough attention. There's very much a kind of pessimistic realism in, in a lot of this stuff around this mortal <laughs> coil. It's not just, uh, it's not just a, 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 a test to see if you're going to get into heaven. It's also an endurance that you have to suffer through. And, and, and so there's, 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 a, there's a bunch of layers underlying why sorrow would be linked to uh, deep cogitation or to the loneliness of scholars or to uh, a bunch of those other factors around cognition and, and, and regarding ourselves like self-reflection as well. Well, I think what's interesting is the shift in, in melancholy. I think we have talked about this as well. Justicia, does it predict singular events or generalized state? Yes. <laughs> so uh, the, the specific states, it, it's, it's, a mark, it's, it's certainly a marker in practice of, of crossed conditions that may or may not be the result of direct malefica of, of an enemy. 
It can reflect putting yourself in crust conditions frequently, of digging yourself deeper, of being your own worst enemy in the uh, unhelpful patterns of thought that just dig you further into that open grave. But it can also speak to a general state of being solitary, melancholy, seldom laughing, those kinds of conditions. So it can refer to a state, but it can also refer to specific events. It, it definitely speaks of losing money in questions about, about money or about travel, like specifically that you'll get robbed or usually as a result of envy of other people. But the, the, it will predict the specifics of that robbery or that loss. That makes sense. I, I, it's interesting, the, the side of it, because I'm thinking about, you know, Okana is run, but the, our, our local me. Mm-hmm. So, so it's where the world was begun. Without bad, there is no good. Ten brains with it. There's also a hint that it comes from the, uh, the combination there of of heart is 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 going to be brought in there. The idea that sadness prolonged now gets described as melancholy and. It is not a state to exist in that can produce any fruit, right? What does that mean? Like, how do it? Even if, 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 for the the ground the of, upon which occult thought rests in the West is there's a romanticization of melancholy and a complete misunderstanding of what it means, perhaps in its original pre-modern and, and early modern context. That from a modern lens, it's very hard to go back and really understand what it's being. Ex- ex- extremely difficult to pick apart because the term means so many different things. Uh, to so many different people. Angus Gowland's The problem, uh, Problems of Early Modern Melancholy kind of starts to sketch this out in a way that's useful, where it, it points out that melancholy is the, is the condition of a, an abundance of melancholia, the humor. It's also uh, a specific acute state of that, as well as a chronic predisposition to that thing. It's also the particular instances of a dysfunction uh, can also themselves breed a melancholy so it can exist in a number of different states, possibilities, and attractors, should we say. Uh, so it's, it's, it's already like a contested topic. And this is partly why Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy is so long and complicated, because he's writing it over decades and seeing the shift of how it's even perceived and what it counts as. And, and even the, the revision of the methodologies of investigating what melancholy is. So not just like passing fashions about what it is and isn't, but also how we even assess it. Yeah, I think uh, the stories that are contained in this permutation in some way, I mean, this is where Shango is, I, I, it's really hard to say this, right? Because we don't normally say it, but Alafina Boyo commits suicide. And I'll say he didn't commit suicide for spiritual reasons. Or where Oshosi accidentally kills his mother is found in here in many versions. So um, these are, especially with the Oshosi one, right? So you you are trying to provide for your family and somehow your hunted goods go away and you raise an arrow into the air and pray that it magically pierces the heart of the person who's stealing them. And it's his own mother who was trying to prepare them for him. And this notion of that the truth exists past our own enjoyment of this life and that there will be hard times. There will be dramatic events. The resolution for it is to go into Obara, right? Which is Letizia. So us, yeah. Yeah, but how do you get there? But part of that observation is perhaps and even in talking about how the ball has to be suspended in the air of Letizia, that here it is the most earthy of things where only earth is active and we want to remedy that with fire. So this is an interesting side of it, which then brings about Karker or Odi if we combine the two like energies. Right. 
it right. evokes that or, or could yeah. Depending yeah, yeah, yeah. Think. Exactly. And is, it, and is it transformative or is it the other, thing, the other way I see Tristicia, Laetitia and Kaka playing out in the wider prison of being uh, imprisoned in a cycle of big ups and big downs? Uh, so it feels like everything is changing. Uh, it doesn't feel like Kaka. You know, it doesn't feel like an obstruction or a, or uh, it feels like, you know, there's constant activity of either like uh, on, a, on, a, on a dizzying high or a crushing low. But that cycle is itself the pattern, the circle that just keeps getting played out. That's your holding pattern, right? It's still stasis. It's just a, a stasis that you keep thinking you're getting out of. <laughs> That's horrible. I mean, that describes depression and melancholy, as far as depression as a modern version of melancholy very well, that it is because depression takes on a life of its own. It's not just about being sad. It's a lack of desire to do anything. It is the asphodelian, asphodel fields of life, living as if you're dead. The, the graying, yeah, yeah. yeah which yeah. makes it sad for other people, not necessarily for you. You know, you're starting to go numb. Yes, yes. and that's, the, that's one of the crucial differences I find between Tristicia and Amicio, is Amicio is grief. For a start, you can do interesting things with like, Amicio is a, a, an exiting figure or a mobile figure, and so it's about publicly unpacking everything and spilling all your secrets, as opposed to Tristicia's uh, quote, stability, right, pointy and down, of being about privately making oneself more numb. Amicio is getting more and more worked up as it, like, gets more and more drunk or intoxicated or as it unpacks more things. It is emptying, whereas Tristicia gets quieter and grayer and buries itself deeper in, it, in the open grave it's digging by being empty. Uh, which it, it, it's those are difficult things to assess for uh, clients' work where, uh, for, for for shields where you are dealing with how people deal with their own stresses, anxieties, traumas, and and sadnesses, and how you help unpack things without re-traumatizing. Yeah, it's it's worth mentioning um, that you know in in the lagoon when this is cast as the first leg of the odu, right? That the shells are refreshed, meaning water and and efun are put in them, and the water is thrown out the door to the street, mm. and then shells are cast there to provide the remedy, because it's it it we want to know immediately. This is not even something like even if it's in a state of blessing, mm. at best you're able to learn from the experience, right. and that is really I think that's really the key in like invoking Letizia as a counterpart to Justicia here of not doing happy things, but to perhaps even go through the motions of you can't make someone be happy. Happiness is a recognition of a shift in, in you. You can make somebody laugh, but and that's a relief. But if, if someone laughs a lot, it changes their mood for sure. We're into, again, the idea of like learning why or how the thing works, what the magic of the ritual is by doing the ritual, not by abstractly armchairing what's happiness and then trying to do those things. Because when we jump in, and try and do the thing, and try and learn what the thing is by doing it. We we level. I know this is a, a term that a lot of people roll their eyes at, but we level up our understanding of the actual living of the thing, as well as the the theory or the philosophy that it is articulating. Yeah, practice without theory is blind, and theory without practice is sterile. Yes, there. My own ideas about spiritual alchemy versus lab alchemy versus versus <laughs> that's its own thing. But there is this idea, I think, of I'm thinking about like modern 
I was listening to someone this morning talking about cultural conceptions of sadness and depression and what that is. And in cultures where there is such a heavy community emphasis, you don't like if someone's isolating themselves, you don't let them yeah. come out. You get to yeah. you can be alone in your thoughts, but we're, you're still coming out with us. Let's do this. Yeah. And because again, these, these regimen are not just comfort eating for the miserable, right? You're, you're, you're said to eat, you know, you're, you're encouraged in, you know, of anti-melancholy regimes to wear bright clothing, be around uh, gay company, to eat rich foods, to gr- dress gaily as well. And that's not, I, I, again, that's not just comfort eating for the miserable, that those have tangible virtues. The, the, the company we keep is used as a diagnostic, like what kind of people are they hanging out with as a way of understanding their, your humoral condition because your sociability affects your humoral position. So again, we're into diagnostics for prognostics. It yeah. comes up with things like nobody says you have to keep your kitchen clean, but if you want to cook the next meal, mm-hmm. you've got to clean it up a little bit, at least in order to cook it. So it's mm-hmm. not about like, uh, or, or outer state reflects inner environment reflects outer state or this type of thing of like, uh, the difference, the studies and being of what it is to have a, uh, make your bed every morning and mm-hmm. like have that be a practice, which mm-hmm. I think there was, a, there's some interesting, just personal reflection on that with friends that chose that as a Lenten observance for themselves, not as a, a getting closer to God thing, but have many friends that are like do Lent as a means of taking on a practice for 40 days. Sure. Uh, which I really enjoy the idea of taking on something as opposed to giving something up because mm-hmm. you are giving something up by taking it on. You're shifting your focus, right. observation of what that is. So, you know, that's involved things. And this is actually a, a, a very common Jetchy exploration, just in the sense of that. But whether it's cold showers, <laughs> what that is, like you're still, you're not going to die, but it's not going to feel good. Um, but, or the taking of the time to do things, like put leave, always leave the bed in a certain state it evokes something different. There's a change that such actions do bring. And it's certainly tied into cultural baggage, but there is a side of it. Of, no matter how many times I tell myself that a cluttered desktop is the hallmark of a creative mind, <laughs> it always makes me feel better. I think it's the the, the other way, right? That uh, uh, what's the the hobgoblin of a, a small mind or something that, that um, overly neat, but that doesn't mean that Messy, therefore, means creative. Uh, well, but there are plenty of studies, and and uh, yes, a lot of them are quote unquote studies that are promoted as memes on Facebook, which make anybody feel better about it. <laughs> going to share, like, look, I'm always a creative genius because only two percent of people keep a desk that cl-, you know. Right, it's, right. Yeah, it's, it's its own thing. I had a question about Okanra, Okanran. It's is it tied to any notions of? I think the easiest term is like treachery. Like there's a lot of interest here. There's a lot of, it's not just dishonesty. It's the dishonesty that produces almost that kind of nine of swords cruelty of, of you thought it was going to be this. And then you were, so like literal betrayals happen, but there's almost a sense here of like sadness producing conditions where we betray ourselves in a sense, not doing the things that we know will help because we're, we're being dragged down and don't feel we have the have the spoons to do those things that we know will help if we do them. You know, Okanran is the pit, right? Because the graphic is still a pit. It's a yeah. hole. And there's this side of it that like the person doesn't trust, doesn't believe. They like to appear a certain way and that social currency is like a big part of how they gain wealth and fame. However, there's also this complete hollowness that the wealth and fame is only from people wanting part of their like the attention from the wealth and fame brings people that only want the wealth and fame. And so they doubt anybody's sincere connection. 
and appear there. So it's one of those things where like, don't tell all your secrets because people, you cannot trust people. You yeah. depend on Okanra is, uh, has a lot of that kind of betrayal through naivete can happen uh-huh. here. There's that side of it. There's no real tranquility at the bottom of the pit, even though you might be fine. Cause you know, like pe- people, you're always waiting for somebody to shove something on top of you. That Right. There's only the numb, uh, yeah, the numbness of waiting for the ambulance to turn up. Yeah. And so there's remedies for it, but it requires a certain amount of making sure that you don't mistake attention for affection. And if you can guide someone through that, if this is a, if this Odu becomes part of their life, whether it's in the Meji or any of the permutations, there's these senses there, right? There's a, a, a strong sense of divine justice. There's a strong sense always, of course, of following what your diviner says, because this is where Oya ma- maintains superiority over Shango, because wind precedes lightning. If there's a harmaton or a hurricane, lightning is limited to that expression. Lightning can happen at other times, but wind is the telltale of the storm. The, the, this type of thing, that this is also where uh, Shango incarnates and comes down to earth. His feet touch the earth here. And what's his other, you know, huge other, pri- it's where he, where he, the accident happens and he becomes deified as well. But the, the, the notion of Letizia and the, the, that shape that is Obata of this fire permanently balanced up there, what a king has to do. You have to wake up, you have to be engaged with the kingdom, you have to constantly be doing these things. Whereas Tristicia and the shape that Okanran takes of that, following that same glyph, uh, not to conflate them, but to make sure we're visualizing the same thing. It's, I feel like Dora the Explorer sometimes. <laughs> like, if I want to mention Tristicia, or if I want to mention Okana, I have to mention Tristicia if I want to mention Tristicia. <laughs> but that there is this thing where you can become too... Um, the inertia is hard to overcome in, in Okanra. And that there is the stink eye of Sauron here that is there that can be horrifically focused on something yeah. that can be your salvation as well, but you have to move through it. The people that this is there, they're, they're intelligent. They're self-sufficient. They do things on their own, but they thrive on the attention of other people to self-validate um, or to validate, I guess not self, it's the opposite of self-validation. They tend to be very engaged in, in social circles and things like this, but they get tired of them very quick and feel betrayed by them. And so they turn over friends very quickly often. The other side of it is that they can become incredibly negative and tend to can become extremely self-sabotaging. And part of this is just, it's the nature of, this is where the world began. It begins with one. It's the first of all numbers. So it's one shell in the Dilogu, and it's only one active point, even in the Ifa figure, right? So it's the active point is on the earth, on the bottom part. And there's something here. This is the start. We go from even though there's a fixed order of Ifa Odu, there's something interesting that this is associated with one. And it is similar to this is the power of negation. Because even when we're reading coconut and it's we call it Okana when it's one one thing speaking out of four. When we're reading Obi. So the Oracle of Biage there starts to do you you see that this is this is a no. This is no. Yeah. It's it's not no with oh this isn't made straight. It's just no. The answer mm-hmm. is no. We have to put a boundary around this, which sometimes you absolutely want that answer, but there's not peace in Okana. Yeah. And that is the thing is you want to try and find remedies so that the person can climb out of that pit, but you cannot force them to climb out. So much like not notions of depression and sadness, there seems to be a lot of overlap between these. And I think, honestly, 
um, you know, the more you and I talk and process these things, both, you know, here and private, there's obviously a lot of conf- conflation between the two. Like there's, they're obviously coming from something similar. Yeah. Uh, what is that or text? I'm not going to worry about as the, the traditions are so vastly different in their praxis and application. And it seems far more likely that this is the result of thousands of, of, of the emergence of, of an iteration of thousands of interactions between individual practitioners as much as it's uh, a single uh, text. Yeah, certainly I would, I will be ostracized by those in the Orisha community that take things literally, but we know when Ifa came in historically, and it seems to be heavily influenced by Islam. So there, there's a difference between now there's a, a tendency to call all of Orisha religion Ifa and those in the diaspora, we, we tend to not do this because for other reasons as well. And this is part of the role of, of Ifa's relationship in the slave trade. But I'm going to get some hate mail on that one. Um, <laughs> but history is history. It's interesting where the divination and the religion upheld the classist cultures of Yoruba, Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And then in the new world, they're used to find advantages however you can. Yes, to elevate yourself, but not just to, def- not just to preserve a social structure that is culturally embedded. Right. It, I think the diaspora, what, what it did for the various expressions of a research tradition is it made it a world religion yeah. and it forced it into understanding multiple lifestyles, multiple dilemmas in that way that were beyond just cultural conceptions. But that's my own look from my book written in 20 years after I survived the onslaughts of criticism and death threats. That <laughs> I am 14 years on Alosha and um, still very much actively learning and studying. And so I will reserve the right to change my mind and will always say that any errors out of my mouth are not the errors of my elders, but they are my own. And whatever I do with the information that I am privileged to be a party to, whether it's from books or them. And on this, in this format, I can iterate again that although sometimes I make suppositions or proposals, I try very hard to talk about things that are published as opposed to oral tradition, because that is not fair to how the language is or how the language of the religion is transmitted right and also uh impractical to share things that don't (laughs) can't be done by someone talking about these things you can easily google and there are some good books and better books uh recently on oldu in english but it becomes very impractical unless you're actually a member of the tradition that said i do enjoy the comparison with geomancy for this reason and that's one of the reasons that we have done it and i think it's also been more interesting in the last few figures uh just because we're there's like a, a different flow which is fun. yeah yeah i think so and 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 these things are always i always value them for perspectives on the way that divination is applied as much as like the methodology of it as much as the the content which is also obviously fascinating and inspiring uh, i don't mean to to um suggest that's not as important but the but the the, the idea of you know when 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 people uh training in divination systems can exchange perspectives on the work and on reflection and on implementation and on remediation and those kinds of things. I think yeah. there's, a, there's a wider use there than just, um, you know, stamping one's own take on my hot take on, on, on this geomantic figure or what have you. So like practically in this sign, when people turn on you, it's a, it, one of the remedies for this can be self-employment uh-huh. where you are not bound. You still have to, you're still, everybody's reflected by the opinions of the public and things like mm-hmm. this. And working for yourself will, if you're constantly having problems with coworkers, working for yourself can eliminate that. If it's not something that's directly you, um, right? But there, you know, I think that's one of the beautiful strengths of Odu of Orisha tradition is that it doesn't 
propose the good character is always emphasized, but it doesn't propose that the medicine that is good for someone or the remedy that is good for someone is necessarily going to produce the same results for someone else because their heads are different. Right. The way they think right. is their priorities, their value centers are different. Your good character, not uh, a one size fits all model of good character. Yeah. Yeah. But there are still best practices as to how we know that we can advance things as opposed to destroy things. So good character is still dependent upon coolness of thought to not be overly heated and react too quickly, that acting is better than reaction. And that this takes a certain discipline and a certain understanding and ability to listen to others that are of completely different mind from you. However, it does not mean that you sit back and let things happen when they're, when you want to take an act we are co-creating the world. So there is this, it's very reflective of kind of a governmental council. You have your facts, you, something's brought to your attention, you have counsel from divination, then you, you yourself decide what you want to do and how you want it to be in the world. And you circle your gods around you to mm-hmm. make that decision. We don't pretend that the gods are equally on everybody's side, but we also don't pretend they're only on our side. <laughs> right, there's a responsibility there that says, you know, you have to get your RE right, right? Uh, that the, the, There's a... It should it should counsel responsibility. Like you don't get to you don't get to just claim that you're necessarily doing what a god tells you to do uh, without also assenting and taking responsibility for those actions. Individual responsibility is prime. So you can't just do the thing that this happens in so many traditions. We we talk about it with astrological passing the blame. Yeah. Oh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm so aggressive, but I have this in the fourth house. Con, you know, conjunct this, and yeah. it, it becomes like okay, but you're just being nasty. Like, <laughs> if we're not going to do anything to, to curb that, then I don't need to come to you anymore. But there is this side of, of, of this, which is the beginning, right? So if the world begins with one, this is a new beginning that's a, sh- a major shift. And it can, if you look at it for the opportunity it is, there's an opportunity for rebirth. So this is the, the beauty in that. This is the forest fire that allows certain plants to grow that wouldn't grow any other way. This is act of this is the wake of the destruction that allows for creation, right? Ah, so it's not necessarily an open grave. It could be a furrow. Yeah, because the open grave is karker for us. Yeah. I, 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 again, I'm feeling a slappy thing, but I'm saying that so that, that people visualize mm-hmm. that the open grave would be associated with the, the one that is Odi, that is karker. It is both the womb and the tomb there. But the idea that the rip, it's still related. Mm-hmm. But the, it's almost like the, to me, if I, huh, if I wanted to be, poetic, and this is going to go off of no tradition here, this is me permutating on it, that Karker would be like the grave itself, yes, but the mound of earth that is displaced and feels displaced from the earth is related to Tristicia, the pit itself, as well as the thing, like you can look at that and go, what's the relationship between the mound as perhaps Letizia, that it's no longer in the earth, it's being exposed, and or versus the pit itself. Right, the, the contents of the thing you have made a pit out of. Yeah, the wound that, that causes the, the earth to split is very, for us, Ogunda, so it's going to deal with the, the Kauda Draconis type of thing. Yeah, like the, the, yeah that's, that's what I was thinking of, like the, the relation between the violence of Kauda, the, the tail of the dragon dragging behind it, this wake of destruction, and that Tristicia is the, is the wake that it has dragged and is yeah. the emptiness after the violence feel like in some ways, as much as I want to do the relationship between the mound and the pit, which is also mm. very fun the meditation, mm. but that more importantly, that Tristicia comes when the whole thing is done, that there's no allow, uh, that, sorry, uh, Leticia comes, that there's a resolution 
because and through born through a conjunction of these things that when those things are reunited in a conjunctio like act with what was above is now reunited with what was below. So it's a recombination, like mm-hmm. a twelve coagula thing. Like you open the grave, you have reason to open the grave because there's a call to it. There's a dead yeah. body to bury. You pierce the earth through more violence. You dig a pit, you displace the earth. Now there's this uh, overwhelming emptiness that has to be filled there. Mm-hmm. And this act of burying the dead, it's kind of like when like why a funeral is as much for the living as it ever was for the dead, if not Absolutely. more. Yeah. The idea that we have to fill this void, we have to see the body go in the ground or we don't accept it. It still mm-hmm. lives. We create the zombie of that spirit because we have not watched it go into the ground. We mm-hmm. have not. Sky burial is the most dramatic form, right? Of like cutting the bodies up of your loved ones. And right. how often we sit on those posts when they come in to the folk necromancer mm-hmm. because we're like, do I want to share this? Because how do we do this? But there's something to that. But the resolution, it strikes me even within Tradcraft of the act of Cain that is glorified and killing of Abel. But Cain becomes something different when he buries his brother, when the mourning yeah. happens, when there's a resolution and the relationship to Seth, to Seth as the line of promise that extends past that. And there are esoteric traditions that talk about Cain's burial of Abel makes him Seth, makes mm-hmm. him there in this, even though that's not biblical. It's just this understanding of what is our relationship to the acts we've done when we seek reparation, when we understand the weight of what we've done, can we truly bury them and allow something to grow? Mm-hmm. Because we'll always know where that grave is. Right. So it's not about just forgive it. It's not just about forget. It's not just not showing up to the funeral. It's mm-hmm. going through the whole act of figuring out how to be accountable for what you've done. That yeah. is where it can go. And so kind of can predict these things like we, we can set things in motion for sure. But there is something there that can be like, this is the, the maybe it's the, the flower in the hand of the fool. Hmm. Like maybe there's something to that, that like the one ray of light that shines through the storm broken clouds. I'm like, there's still something here. And yeah. that making way for new growth, it's incredibly important. It is sad to cut down a forest yeah. and you can sit there and be crazy about it. But also, are you going to let all those trees go to waste? Um, like, hmm. That type of thing. I remember the first herb hike and like with uh, a friend who they found a dead possum and they were like, we're going to take this home and cook. And I was like, Ugh. and she's like, or would you rather do nothing? I was like, yeah. oh, animals might eat it. She's like, and now we'll see us. Mm-hmm. My first possum that I ever ate. Cool. Uh, although I recommend knowing very well, like she does about when it's okay to eat something you find in the woods. Cause maybe it ate something terrible and poisonous. Right. <laughs> I do not have this knowledge, but there are many <laughs> All, all things edible sometimes only once, right? Yeah. Thank you, Carrie. Yeah. Speaking of, of nothing, I don't know. I was going to try to make that witty because I feel like there's a, a nice stirring of the Okana Justicia pot there. Mr. Randolph. Yeah. Pascal Beverly Randolph. So he's mid 19th century, really, is his active period. He's a doctor, an occultist, spiritualist, and a trance medium, amongst yeah. other things, known especially for the establishment of a Rosicrucian order in the States. Uh, So we're dealing with an American magician. Sorry um, to all my European friends who don't think they exist. Uh, (laughs) But I don't know, he's such a Renaissance man. And notably, an important thing is that this is a person of mixed race. He's, He's black by American standards. And the incredible imprint he has upon American occultism, especially the spiritist communities and the Rosicrucian communities. And he is appreciated by people, but he is not as well known as I would assume that he should be. Also, if you're into sex magic, him and Ida Craddock are like, that's the spiritist sex magic. 
right there. Ida Craddock, we'll talk about another time. She's a favorite of mine. But yeah, I know that she did a lot of research on him too. So I, I, again, I'm not an expert on him. I just find him wonderful mind to to read and engage with as best as I can by her here. Yeah, yeah. Again, also not uh, an expert uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And but trying to try to browse through his more than 50 works on like yeah. uh, medicine as well as magic. Like, yeah, a, a fully trained like medical doctor traveled extensively, which is, is, is often the thing that his few biographers that do exist often point to um, that he's, he's, you know, gone around trying to take in an awful lot of different approaches to ritual and to religion and to the thing that gets called spirituality. Yeah, a, 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 a truly uh, fascinating customer who for whatever reason and and it's for whatever reasons and it's hard not to mention just the explicit racism of his of his time period has been kind of undervalued that there's a kind of sense of a that there feels like a placeholder there of a site you know there's a in, in in the drawer of of things known about him it is known that he's important but not exactly much about him or why <laughs> It's not until 94 that uh, Jocelyn Goodwin writes about, points out that he's been largely neglected by historians of, of magic and of, even of, 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 of spiritism and spiritualists themselves. Uh, then there's a, a biography that's published in 96, Beverly, uh, it's Pascal Beverly Randolph, a 19th century Black American spiritualist, Rosicrucian and sex magician by John Patrick Devaney and Franklin Rosemont. And then we get Tao Allen Greenfield in 2000, writing PBR, Sexual Magic in the 19th Century. And that's yeah. Pascal Beverly Randolph, not um, perhaps the rhythm. <laughs> and there's been, there's been one or two other more recent works as well. And, and certainly Greenfield is very into the idea of, of him being credited as the, the author or the key Western transmitter of the core magical teachings of the Ordo Templates Laurentius. There's so many interesting... I mean, he's, his, his nickname for himself, his, his moniker is the Rosicrucian. This is how he mm-hmm. cites things. Self-brands very well with that. It's interesting because it made me think of in the, in the history of spiritualism, spiritism, a lot of the early spiritists are not credited with what they did. And heavily, this is because the history of spiritism in the States, which a lot of it's one of the hugest schools of it is Hudson Valley. And then moving up from there, the early days of transmediumship and things like this. The guy who did the lore podcast has an amazing, his second chapter of this podcast that he's doing that is looking at uh, spiritism in general, unobscured is the podcast. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Second season is all about the history of spiritism. It's outstanding. Mm-hmm. And it's bringing up figures that are not talked about much, but spiritism is almost always tied into abolitionism. Mm-hmm. And it was heavily suppressed because a lot of the occult authors were heavily tied into Southern branches of Freemasonry, or at least were very impressed by people like Pike, who had his own specific theories, and Pike's a genius, but is also a product of his time. And that's its own thing to talk about in another format, probably. But I feel like there's a lot of people that because of their unpopular political views at the time, were dropped in favor of the more mystical, educated sounding, because spiritism is an incredibly Protestant notion, right? Right. You directly communicate with spirits, that Mm -hmm. everybody has this potential. And there are some people that are born mediums, sure. But the difference between that versus theosophy, which is takes a lot of things from spiritism, but considers spiritism kind of base. And that's an interesting side of it too. So I feel like there's a lot of that there that uh, a, a Black man who had 
One, his first wife being also black and his second wife, I believe, was Irish um, descent. So mm-hmm. this is a highly controversial man doing highly controversial things. He moved from New York to New Orleans to San Francisco and finally to Ohio. Was it Toledo? Yeah. Which is the sister city of Toledo, Spain, which is always strange to me. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Which is a really bizarre city to visit just for the cathedral itself. And even before that, right, in the late 1840s, he's embarking on this European tour and just meeting like uh, Elvis Levy, Edward Bulwer Lytton, uh, Kenneth uh, H. McKenzie, uh, Hargrave Jennings, E.A. Hitchcock, who introduced him to Napoleon III. Uh, later, uh, he gets introduced to Abraham Lincoln. Like he's, he's, he's meeting and impressing a lot of people. The talk of like, him turning up to these salons and like passing spirits and, and, and kind of not just passing spirits well, but like uh, directing uh, the, the proceedings as a charming and very competent, I want to say orator or, or like manager of people, but there, there are more skills at work here than just being smart or being good at magic. He was just brilliant, despite what anybody has conflicts of his the specificities of his theories or things like this. He just, he was obviously charismatic in addition to just being incredibly learned for his time period. I mean, like just, again, I think there's the, the which I joked about this earlier, but I have to remind myself all the time that this is pre-internet because internet has become the, the mainstay of like, I can look this up really quickly. It's fine. It's here. Mm-hmm. Just even the way that I would have prepared for something like what we're talking about would be different without the internet. We're literally recording this over the internet right now, but not to extolly versus the internet. That's its own demon in the future. <laughs> um, but that, just the pro- the prolificness of him really is fascinating to me. I, I love this spin that he does. I mean, he's very vocal about American politics. He's speaking in the last decade before the abolition of slavery, very heavily in New York, and is also has very little hope for citizens of the country who are not white. He's he yeah. basically yeah. says and says, it's not going to ever resolve. This country is until you until you tear down the country. Basically, he doesn't say that that to my knowledge, but he says that it's too enwrapped with itself. And one of his proposed solutions is uh, it's 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 immigration, right? Yes, to another highly stratified colonized country. It's, it's fascinating to me the way in which his sex magic doesn't feel as exploitative as some other forms. Sometimes, I mean, you know, to make the the obvious comparison to ongoing debates about. Or how he treat, or, or, or in practice, his behaviors around women, the advocation on promotion of, of birth control at a time when it's against the law to even mention the topic is, is I think, worth pointing out alongside his abolitionism and things. And certainly, when he's talking about um, anseratic mystery and new revelation concerning sex, you know, there's there's this like enthusiasm there that that feels very Craddock as well, right? That that you know you need to transmit. You can't just say bloodlessly. That, that sex magic is about the joy of the human spirit, right? You, you can't just say that with a gray kind of face. The, 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 the exclamation of it is interesting. You know, he talks about I, 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 the passage about the ejective moment in, in, in sex magic in, in the big mystery. He says it's the, the most divine and tremendously important one in the human career as an independent entity. For not only may we launch genius, power, beauty, deformity, crime, idiocy, shame, or glory on the great on the world's great sea of life in the person of the children we may then produce, but we may plunge our own souls neck deep into hell's horrid slime, or else mount the azure as co-equal associate gods. Like it's thoroughly exciting, right? <laughs> yeah. 
it also speaks to the okay so the fraternitas rosicrucius that he founds mm-hmm. man eh, we had talked about whether or not to discuss the controversies around his death but it, it it's fascinating to me that the, in the history of rosicrucian orders in the new world it is not uncommon for murder of the supreme of, of leaders of different communities to happen and this is fascinating to me that the a later supreme master of the fraternity that because his de- death was listed as um, a self-inflicted wound to the head yeah and many people noted and note posthumously that he was not a fan of suicide in his own writings and which that's not just like a one passing letter there are many mentions to it as a a a, a, a an act that lacks virtue but not in a, I'd have to see the specific quotes before I start there and say anything past that. But that Swinborn Climber, Ruben Swinborn, Swinborn Ruben, one of the yeah two. yeah yeah uh, Swinborn Climber, yeah okay. That he admits on his deathbed to having killed him in a state of jealousy, and the court then lists the death as accidental, which you know crime of passion or whatever it was, which is perhaps unfortunately flavored by uh, political motivations of the time. I think Greenfield does a very good job of pointing out that, that giving an account of these disputed circumstances. He says, he points out that, on the, that, that his son had just been born on the 29th of March and that by the end of July, he to SS Jones and saying that he, he's, he's come out of a depression. He's been in, he's noted as, as having depressive uh, periods in his life, again, for whatever that means, but points out that he wrote this letter saying that he, feel that he felt that he could uh, you know, win new victories and was no longer afraid of, of not having enough money or, or, or associates or even faith in, in God or what he was doing. And then Greenfield says nine days later, he suppose he's said to have committed suicide in Toledo, Ohio at 50. So it's, it, yeah, it, it's always so difficult to know what's going on with, with, with one in those kinds of circumstances. And I'm loath to encourage ghoulish speculation, obviously. But as you say, it's interesting how often this kind of these disputed circumstances kind of arise Certainly South American and Central American Rosicrucian fellowships, whether that's to debate what is Rosicrucianism or what makes it a Rosicrucian fellowship, but there's a lot of enemy Rosicrucian gangs, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's fascinating to me. I, what just came to mind is the notion, too, of there's always been this interesting debate of high magic and low magic, of being high class and low class. Ultimately, that, that low magic is the magic of the commoner and that high magic is the, the magic of the aristocrat. And I don't think it can be reduced that simply. However, there is some notion of that should sting just a little bit. It should make us question because there's also this side of it that I see happens, whether it's masonry, Rosicrucianism, the occult in general, this idea that you understand that there's something behind this proposed secular order of the world. And as you investigate it, you there's a lot of occult texts that kind of promise the world and then give you this like very stratified one specific explanation of something and mm-hmm. might find evidence that that's not a universal truth. And so you go back into a depression of like, well, I know that I don't know what is the truth actually out there. Paging Fox Mulder. Um, <laughs> I must still look for them though. I must still yeah, look for them. Yeah. That, yeah. That side of it, of that self doubt that necessarily should st- slip in because if you were if you doubted the reality then doubt is a common thing there mm-hmm. and it you would should necessarily be skeptical towards the explanations as well as if you've had you know the wool pulled over your eyes already so like uh-huh. how many times do we wake up to the truth there are plenty of people that latch on to an esoteric tradition that is different or convert to a religion and then are just as fanatical 
You know, it's that old KO principle of like, you know, it's very easy to go from fanatic of something to fanatic of something else because the, the, the zeal of the convert, right. And, you know, we have to do that on certain levels of, again, the zeal of the convert is also so that you can make sure that you understand how things are different. But yeah. really the zeal, the emotional state that you like thriving in is, should be examined as well. What is this drama junkiness of like, you know, well, my confusion about all these new facts and principles is totally sidestepped by the fact that I've surrounded myself by people that are going through major life shit. And I can (laughs) just memorize this correspondence chart. It will all make sense. But you've distracted yourself. Mm -hmm. Done the backup work. You haven't necessarily done the laboratory work just because you've memorized the spiritual work. And the distinction when that, when that class stratification of high versus low magic ends up being almost crystallized to mind or soul versus body. You know, low magic is the distracts your soul by making sure that you've got food or a roof or that your you know, enemies aren't stealing your children. So strangely so embedded in Judeo-Christian ideas of suffering, you know, some hard, you know, uh, tempering of the soul that it's mm-hmm. interesting that for people that are really reacting to standardized Judeo-Christianity, then seem to really get stung up on the thing of spirituality shouldn't cost money. You shouldn't have to pay for your resources. Meanwhile, they're practicing an incredibly aristocratic derived tradition, dependent uh, first and foremost on on an education to even read what you're doing. It's a lot. I remember in the 90s, there was a discussion, um, and I'm not sure where I, I mean, it's it's one such, it was a discussion. It wasn't a a thesis. It wasn't a lifestyle. But there used to be this bookstore in Riverside called Kong's Home Packs, named after the Crowley work. And it was, it was a fun thing to be a teenager to go into because they had a lot of people. It's where I met Duquette. It's where I met uh, Robert Anton Wilson, driving out for friends that were out there. Riverside's about 60 or some miles outside of Los Angeles. But the, one of the owners and I, were, she was just talking because at that time, I was very interested. I was reading everything I could. But of course, various forms of witchcraft were appealing to me, perhaps more than ceremonial magic, but I was trying to be equally versed in whatever I could. And anybody that was around in the 90s, you understand that there was a point where you could probably own every book there was being currently published on witchcraft or magic. There just wasn't that as much. It changed towards the late 90s. And then in the 2000s, forget it. Like it's, it became the internet, like it's a different thing. But I remember her proposing that a divide between at least ceremonial magic and, and neo-pagan witchcraft or even high magic and low magic was worship of nature versus worship of consciousness, or at least a, an emphasis on consciousness or an emphasis on nature. So again, interior, exterior worlds, but the interior world doesn't exist in this lifetime without the taking care of the exterior world. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Again, you've got Bruce uh, Smith's retort about Descartes convincing European intellectuals some to this day that they can think without their bodies. Yes, exactly. And so, <laughs> it's, if nothing else, you know, if you're working your demons and we got it, it's ask for protection and health. Yeah. A, yeah. yeah. Have health. If your body's in a good shape, you can probably secure most other blessings. That's a very strong mm-hmm. tenet. So I, I agree with that. The other thing is, can you can go from millionaire, from homeless to a millionaire and back again, but you can't do any of that if you're not alive. Is that, is that a really like morbid take on you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, well, if I say back again, but mm-hmm. if we just, the first part said, you could go from sleeping on a park bench to a millionaire in one year. It's possible. If you aren't J.K. Rowling, who's <laughs> making an ass out of herself. At the very least, yeah. So I think with Randolph, with Dr. Randolph, it's important to frame him, as you say, there, there are ways we can, we have to talk about him if we're going to talk about the history of spiritualism. And again, I, I, I spent a bit more time reading up on his relation to, uh, 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 you know, Greenfield's take on his relation to 
the OTO where he's he's very clear that this this what he calls the unique amalgam of love and will in these in these concepts that when Greenfield is trying to describe if not define like what the deal is. Uh, what's he says? You know, what's clear is the core ideas which make the OTO unique came from Randolph directly or indirectly. So he also needs to be talked about uh, in those terms. And, and and again, there's there's some talk about including him in the um, the list of saints read out in the Gnostic Mass and things like that because he's clearly an ancestor of of that sort. And there was there was a uh, and yeah and, and his relationships uh, which are rather less sanguine, shall we say, to the Theosophical Society as well. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and some of that stuff. But there's a fabulous quote from him. In terms of trying to explore this, like, oh, what's what's being talked about here in terms of love and will? How where, where are we going with these kinds of ideas? And I found this lovely quote from Dr. Randolph himself that, it, that I think really hits on a lot of the the themes we've been talking about today. Right? He says, uh, "Remember, O neophyte, that I am not dealing in mere philosophical formulae." quote, recipes or trashy directions, but in and with fundamental principles underlying all being. Fix this principle firmly in your memory and roll it under the tongue of your clearest understanding. Take it in the stomach of your spirit, digest it well, and assimilate its quintessence to and with your own soul. That principle is formulated thus, love lieth at the foundation of all that is. And love is convertibly passion, enthusiasm, affection, heat, fire, soul, God. Master that. <laughs> I'm reminded of the, his admonitions of having a good woman. <laughs> because he, for as pro-sex as he is, he's not pro-sex for the sake of sex. It's, no. a, sac- it's a sacred act that allows unification with, with something more. And right, he says it can be either ennobling or degrading. Yes, and that success in any case requires the adjuvancy of a superior woman. <laughs> this is the law. A harlot or low woman is useless for all such lofty and holy purposes, and just so is a bad, impure, passion-driven apology for a man. Hmm. The woman shall not be one who accepts rewards for compliance, nor a hmm. virgin, or under 18 years of age, or another's wife. So he's... Hmm. Like spelling it like it's not just about having sex yet must be one who has known man and who has been and still is capable of intense mental, volitional and affectional energy combined with perfect sexive and orgasmal ability for it takes a double crisis to succeed. It's, it's this language of the woman is part of it. And it's not just about you using the physical bodies of women for this. So I think it's so far as even uh, some people, I think Kat Ironwood, describes him as a sex mystic as well as a sex magician and the importance of what that is. But certainly he's got so many writings to go through. When you see it listed as like 50 works, you're like, I'm guessing some of these are like pamphlets, but no, the, the majority of them are like, like very long and in depth. So tying it all together, I mean, I, I, I am more than happy to continue to pro- talk about Randolph in the future and things like this. Cause I think we can bring it back to anybody we've talked about in the past because it's our goddamn show. Hell yeah. But also it's a fun one. This is, this is a great thing. I mean, we're, we're hoping that when you're hearing this, that we have figured out the secrets of memeing small bits of information, not necessarily memeing, but providing hopefully conversation starters on such things. And Randolph is certainly fascinating. Uh, there's a lot of amazing quotes from him. I'm not proposing him as the, the hero of the world. I'm just saying that 
man, there's a lot to read through there. And if we know that he's such a profound influence, perhaps we should go back and give him some credit. And uh, this is like, you know, when talking about things like theft of mind and citing your sources, so interesting to like, what do we owe it when we know that this was the source of something else? Or we highly suspect it and we say nothing. And what are we doing when we deprive people of the ability to research something themselves? We guard our sources so closely because we have become so ego identified with our knowledge on a topic that it becomes something that is no longer serving the thing that I think many of us would hold up as a good part of it. It also more specifically seems to be one of those, hopefully a a dismantling of that reactionary citing the result of erasure as justification for erasure, right? Where are the uh, women sex magicians to seem to be there. We'd love to invite them to the conference if they existed, but they don't seem to. And the reason they don't seem to is because of erasure. And yeah, again, evidence of absence and absence of evidence, et cetera. That's another reason why these, these lacuna and these silences are particularly, particularly damaging. Yeah. Mm. Even in the parallels there to the, like we talked about, the pre-atomism that was, he held up to of just uh, he differed from many pre-atomites in, in claiming that the pre-atomites were perhaps civilized and not necessarily a reflection that there's, there are definitely politics about the spreading of the white light of Christianity. And I use that term extremely loadedly through mm-hmm. Europe allows for a superiority of enlightenment that enlightenment cannot be separated from colonialism and slavery. It cannot right. be. It's, that's how the empire formed. So it's interesting to, for, to combat that in that way. Pascal Beverly Randolph, I salute you. Thank you for, uh, I, I'm excited that there are, We've run out of the basic 101 topics at some point in the 90s. And like people like Jocelyn Goodwin were like, we should make sure that this person's known about. And it opens up further research, which is fascinating. That also gives Al Dead Magicians come in something to talk about. <laughs> Everyone take a drink. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was interviewed on something uh, that should be out relatively recently, should be out relatively soon, and, and used the phrase Dead Magicians and had to stop myself from saying, Everyone take a shot. Because it had no content. <laughs> it only has the context if you give it one, Al. It's true. It's true. All right. Dead Magician's drinking game. Let's, let's do it. There's the spirit. Mm. The cabinet. The devil's cabinet. Just because the way that you abbreviate J the B, like the pillars of the temple, initials on the, like, it's just interesting because I never really think about that of Jacob and Boaz of the high priestess card of the pillars uh, on either mm. side or these things in the, in the, in the temple. But mm. yeah. So it, 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 it's interesting, the, the threshold that allows you to gain mastery by becoming the middle pillar, by, beca- by walking through into the temple lodge room is J the B, J and B. Uh, right. And who sits in front of the mysteries before they are penetrated. Yeah. May you all have a powerful midsummer. <laughs> What's that phrase about the, the recent movie, Horror in the Daylight? May there at least be nice floral crowns. Yeah. I think the beautiful thing about this time is we celebrate the height of the sun, yet it is also the destruction of the sun because it's starting to die. And that's the nature of, of a zenith. It's the peak. And now we descend the mountain. So I guess as we approach midsummer here and the bonfires are blazing high and we're jumping through it, celebrating the fruits of our labor is yet to come that we may hopefully not count our chickens before they hatch and, and keep in mind the fool as we descend the mountain into 
the desert of the real, that all that glitters is not gold, but many things that glitter still have value. If we understand the context and the use, if we understand that prophecy is rare, unless we perhaps understand that how we interact in the world is itself a form of prophecy. But as the Lon Miley Duquette was a fan of this type of thing, that once you interpret, once you understand how a diviner thinks, then everything becomes divination. <laughs> and so I like this idea of for them with eyes to see and ears to hear, the world is talking and John the Baptist is screaming <laughs> from the cell of the sins of the queen. But there's something beautiful in this interrelatedness in the crossing imposed boundaries in redefining yourself and helping others dismantle the incarceration of the Baptist. And even then what severs the head, the head can still speak after, or at least send some nasty lady far into the sky, never to be seen again. (laughs) And just hats off P.B. Randolph. I would try to make that a, a metaphorical thing past that, but like, may we all follow our passions so readily and study and continue to propose revolutionary things and may may the uh, may the orgasm bring new awareness and not just be an escape. Absolutely, dead magicians, dead magicians, dead magicians. Shut, shut, shut. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, everyone, for for joining us on this on this adventure through the wilderness and, and back out of it. Absolutely, may uh, be la life and all that stuff. Yeah, all right. Always a pleasure, Al. Someday we'll see each other again in the flat. <laughs> imagine, imagine that. But for now, I'll deal with the, the pyrite of the computer screen. Ah, the close facsimile. Yes. The simulacrum of the presence of a friend. Yeah, exactly. Ecclesiastes. All right. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. We will do more soon. As always, look for us. Our current talks and classes are listed on the Radio Free Golgotha site. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are doing much better about updating those things. We are both participating in the Salem Folklore and Witchcraft is, I forget the actual name now. Mm-hmm. That's right. Salem Summer Symposium, which is the web address, salemsummersymposium.com. Yeah, the Witchcraft and Folklore Festival, yeah. There we go. And as well as my business partner, Troy, is speaking there and many of our friends and friends-to-be and friends we met last year. Um, <laughs> it's exciting that it's continuing. This will be in August. It is also, I'm just going to plug it because I really enjoy what they're doing and making sure that all 29 classes are available. You could have access to and, and go to all of them if you want because of yeah. the advantages of recording off the internet. Yeah, there's a silver lining to doing uh, this festival and conference entirely online this year. It's sad not to be able to spend physical space conspiring, breathing together. But the advantage is that you don't have to pick between which class you'll be in. You don't even need a, a time turner to turn up to more than one class at once. Absolutely. So looking forward to this. And as always, feel free to, if you're not a member of the Folk Necromancy group on Facebook, just make sure you answer the questions because we, we really don't let you in if you don't answer the two questions. Yeah. yeah. Not that hard. And but, really any answer is like, not any answer, but like, an, an, we're not looking for the right answer. We're looking for an answer. The second question should be yes, but the first one is up to you. But it's a group that we co-moderate with Ben, the illustrious Ben Jaffe, who we hope to have mm-hmm. on the show soon. Absolutely. Uh, and we explore many of these topics and others. I, I have the feeling that many people in the group have no idea that it's actually a Radio Fiegel Gotha group. And that's, I think, not a bad thing for me. So yeah, classes, talks, 
things like this. We have a few things in store for later in the year, and we're going to continue to process the the Easter egg episodes of our scrambled past. Yeah, we'll go from there. And Al, travel safely. I believe you're heading back into the city at some point soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for everybody moving around, keep in mind the pandemic is still going on. And whether it's, is this one of those things where like the gods are like, the, you don't have to believe in the pandemic because the pandemic believes in you. <laughs> right. Remember without health, it is very hard to secure all other blessings. Happy midsummer, everyone. May your baby never be decapitated like John the Baptist. May you turn it into something good. All right. Now I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Silver linings, blah, blah, blah. Shut up, Jesse. Thanks, Al. <laughs> Thanks, mate. All right. Take care, everyone.